Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Okay, everybody, what a week. What a week. We should just get right to it. I mean, I won't spend any time this week on, you know, Tucker Carlson in the Kremlin, even though there's a joke and a song in there somewhere for all of us. But let's get to the week. And I'll be honest, I didn't pay as much attention during the week. I mean, there was so much punditry that said this week was full of bad news bad political news for everyone. As I say, I stayed away from social media. I took the time to finish a long novel, um, in part just to give me the time to digest the news. And when I did, turns out the pundits were wrong. This was not a bad week for everyone. Um, but for Republicans, this is their worst week since, I don't know, since Lincoln was assassinated. And it was a week that unfortunately has consequences for real people everywhere. So let's just start right in. Um, uh, uh, last week, special counsel Robert Hur released his long weighted report on Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. Mr. Biden, the report says, should not be prosecuted for his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House. And, you know, the report begins with this sentence here. Let me just read it. We conclude that no criminal charges are warranted in this matter. Right. And then, like I read it later, after laying out what evidence there is, the report says, and here I'm going to read it again. In addition to this shortage of evidence, there are other innocent explanations for the documents that we cannot refute. Right. In between the beginning and that conclusion in the end, in between those two findings, special counsel her speculated that if the government did charge the president, his defense would be that Joe is old and impaired. Oh, my gosh. That's Mr. Her. Look, he did his job. He looked at the evidence and he found that unlike Mr. Trump, um, the evidence doesn't warrant further action by the Justice Department. But Mr. Her a Trump appointee, and he's associated with a Federalist Society, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself. He's got the GOP addiction. He tried to put his thumb on the scale as he went out the door. Read in its entirety, here's what the report says. It says, Joe is innocent and the GOP can't stand it. Right? Predictably, oh my gosh, Republicans are slamming the Justice Department. They're saying this report proves that the government is treating Donald Trump unfairly. Huh. They're also salivating over the gratuitous comments about President Biden's age and memory. It's sort of like saying the election for president was rigged. Oh, but the Senate election on the same ballot, that was just fine. Seriously? Bottom line on all of this. Uh, uh, Trump is indicted and on trial for his handling of national secrets. Joe Biden isn't and shouldn't be. Geopartisans are again unmasked as the ones who are eager to weaponize government whenever they can. So much for that. Let's move over to the Supreme Court, where most observers now expect the court to overturn Colorado's decision to exclude Mr. Trump from the ballot on the grounds, of course, that he swore an oath to protect the country and then incited inauguration. The aha moment, and I did listen to the whole oral argument, the aha moment 
um, seems to have been when Justice Kagan asked why a single state should decide who gets to be the president of the United States. But look, why is not a question textualists ask. The Supremes didn't ask why they should let everyone walk around with a gun or why it was a good idea to let unlimited amounts of dark money pervert our politics. Oh, I could go on. Nope. Instead, in those cases, they asked, what do the words say? And what did the framers mean when they wrote them? Look, my view and the view of many legal scholars, including high profile conservative jurists, um, is that the words of the Constitution and the intent of the framers likely support the Colorado position. At the same time, don't get me wrong, I think Kagan is right. Individual states shouldn't determine who the president is. The idea that a candidate could be on the ballot in some states, but not in others is absurd, even if that's what the Constitution says. That raises the possibility, folks, that our basic law just isn't perfect. Now, here's the thing. The textualists, these fine folks on the Supreme Court, they argue that's not their problem. For decades, they have thundered at us that if the law is, you know, if it leads us into strange places, well, then we should amend it. But there was no thunder this time. This time, they don't like where the law takes us. This So this week, and here's where we have to just bottom line this, too. The Supreme Court reminded, once again, when it's their ox being gored, we shouldn't expect recusals or principles to stand in their way. Okay. Let's cross the street to the biggest disaster for the Republicans. And the first two were pretty big, but let's cross the street. Because the Republicans in Congress this week proved, let me just count the words, right? Feckless, spineless, unprincipled, incompetent, idolatrous, and pathetic. And that was just one day. Look, let's let's put this into context. Do you remember what Speaker Johnson told us in the run-up to his speakership? He gave a speech about his path to the speakership, where he declared, I started praying more, and the Lord began to wake me up. He said that as other candidates stepped up but didn't have the votes, he said, I waited and I waited. And when uh, it came toward the end, the Lord said, now step forward. Me? I'm supposed to be Aaron. And the Lord said, step forward. Mr. Johnson is clear. God spoke to him and said, no more number two for you. You're going to be the man who parts the waters and leads the people to the promised land. Well, look, if this week is any indication, I bet Mr. Johnson is now praying to go back to bondage in Egypt because he promised Mr. Trump and his fellow GOP members that he would impeach the Homeland Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas, in order to blame him for the border mess. And look, to his credit, dutifully, he prepared for the vote. And he whipped the votes and he held the vote and he lost, you know, and he didn't lose because Republicans changed their minds. Oh, no, the Republican mind is clear. And you know what? This week, they made that mind clear to the rest of us, too. We now know their strategy. The GOP followed Mr. Trump's orders and killed the deal they had negotiated themselves to enact stricter immigration laws, to provide billions for border security, to catch fentanyl in the border, to add immigration judges, to speed up decisions on asylum. Their grand strategy now is as clear for all to see as it is in tatters on the floors of a house. 
because it was to make the border an issue, to keep it an issue, to impeach Secretary Mayorkas and to lay the crisis at the feet of the Biden administration. But you know what? That's all gone up in smoke because they don't want to fix the border. And so their minds haven't changed. So how did they lose that vote? Well, as it turns out, as the voting was underway, a Democrat got up from his hospital bed and wheeled into the chambers in his you know, hospital gown and slippers. Was that a miracle from God? Is he raising the sick to step in the breach? Speaker Johnson might ask the Lord about that the next time he talks to him. But my guess is it was government-funded health care. Anyway, later that same day, because you know what? Wasn't enough, this beating they took. After saying that aid to Israel no longer needed to be contingent on a border deal, because remember, Mr. Trump said they no longer needed a border deal, um, Johnson brought to the floor a package of support for Israel, a package that lacked humanitarian aid for the Palestinians and military aid for Ukraine. And once again, he counted the votes, he whipped the votes, and he lost the vote. When Democrats pick up another seat this coming week in New York in the special election to replace the GOP liar George Santos, Mr. Johnson's majority is going to be even smaller, like his stature as a leader. Meanwhile, Republican Chair Ronna McDaniel is stepping down. After years of sycophancy and supplication, she is apparently no longer pleasing in the eye of Donald Trump. Theirs is a vengeful God indeed. Look, politically, this was a train wreck for the GOP. But we live in the real world, and politics have real consequences. Republican failures strengthened Vladimir Putin and weakened Europe. Republican infighting damaged Israel and increased the humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Republican cynicism extended, you know, the troubles on our border well into the future. My gosh, the sooner these people are out of government, the better. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, you know what? We're going to talk with Rachel Bitkoffer about her new book and, you know, how to make that happen. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, uh, welcome back. Rachel Bickhoffer's new book is Hit Him Where It Hurts. She's a political strategist and I think it's fair to say impatient with Democrats who think politics is going to be won through, you know, sort of old school traditional principle debate. Uh, to be clear, she isn't arguing that our politics should be unprincipled. <laughs> Rather, she wrote the book just to tell Democrats how to win in, win in the real world. Rachel, welcome back. I think we last spoke on this show in November of 2021, and a lot has changed since then. I mean, the more it changes, the more it gets the same, right? Our democracy is collapsing. We can pretend it's not happening, but it's happening right in front of us. And when we think about the couple of years since we've last spoken, it has been nothing but erosion ever since. So, Oh, you and I are going to disagree a little about that, and I look forward to that. I think we're winning. I think the bad folks, the ones who want to destroy the democracy, are hardcore, and they're out there. But they aren't winning the elections that they think they're winning. And I you know, I, I think if we take your counsel, we're going to put them in the ash heap of history. Well, that's the reason we have been stopping them at the ballot box. So I, I tend to do agree with you. <laughs> yep. So, so, so you've written this book, and I know you were on uh, my friend Jones' show this week, um, but I want to dive a little deeper into your book with you for a while, if that's okay. Sure. That's great. Um, yeah, no, I enjoyed reading it. And you begin your book with 
I think what you, you, you call the most important thing to say. And um, so let, just let me read what you wrote. You wrote, the GOP is a threat to your freedom, health, wealth, and safety. If they gain control of the federal government, they plan on passing a national abortion ban, gutting Medicare, destroying Obamacare, raising taxes on working families, and stealing a lifetime of your Social Security money. I love that. I just wondered, did you, did, is it, was it just was it just space that, you know, and your editor's requirements that that made that list so short? Because they'll also oh, no. pollute the planet. Yeah. Right. Give give yeah. Europe to Russia. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things you could add to that list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what our tendency is. Right. We want if we're going to make a list, it has to be all exhaustive and inconclusive. And once you list 10 things, you make no impact. So. Ah, that's a good point. So, so it was, ah, and this gets, to the, this gets to the part of the book. So, I mean, so that was want, a rhetorical question. At the, at the core, the core argument of the book is Republicans pick one very scary thing and they define us around it and make every candidate respond to it, and every other candidate is hitting them on it. Right. So it's going to be Biden's yeah. age and immigration all the way through. We want to talk yeah. about well, well, we missed climate change and we didn't talk about this and that, just as you just did, which is no, no problem, right? Because that's our inclination mm-hmm. is to be exhaustive. And what I'm trying to tell people is stop doing what you think is right and start doing what I'm telling you to do, which is right. the focus so, so, on the most important, most universal elements of it and, and uh, you know, things that can be delivered to very concretely. So climate change is a collective problem. Stealing my Social Security money is an individualized issue. Do you see what I'm saying? Totally. Listen, I once, um, when I was a Chicago alderman, I had some some very savvy police guys come out and do, you know, safety training for people in my neighborhood. And they said, look, if you're out on the street at night and, and, and somebody is about to rob you, don't yell help because help makes the guy sitting in his couch inside nervous that it might be a problem for him and he's going to stay there. Yell fire because then he thinks his house is going to burn down and he'll call 911. I mean, there you go. That's a great, I might steal that from you. In, it's in all the yours. Because it's exactly how, I mean, getting liberals to stop making messaging that appeals to collective good and, and instead the human, the humans are wired for self-interest, folks, okay? We may be less self-interested maybe than your average Republican, but we're still on the bell curve of basic human psychology. And that's why it's so important for us to stop doing messaging on accuracy awards, trying to win representation awards in our message. What we should be doing is making a small, short, simple, emotive message that puts Republicans on the defense. I'm, I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of messaging in a bit, but you don't get to that right away in your book. But I think the book, um, it, it, it's, it's about messaging, but you aren't, I think, saying that messaging is everything. You make space yeah. for careful yeah. policy work and excellence in government. But I think your case is that these things are possible when you win and the path to winning requires a, a, a um, clear-headed approach to messaging. Well, I mean, it's not. So as you were saying, this isn't a book that's just about messaging. It's about strategy, the overall strategy, and getting Democrats to understand how the Republican electioneering system differs from our own. And the way that it differs is how it evolved into the 2000s and 2010s 
into a different appeal. Um, a Republican candidate like J.D. Vance in Ohio did not run on J.D. Vance's biography and on his promised policy appeals to median voters in Ohio. J.D. Vance ran a campaign that was about Tim Ryan and about making voters of Ohio associate him with us being an extremist socialist movement. That is a very different way to do persuasion than the way that we keep insisting on doing. And in the book, I talk about the pivot in Arizona and Michigan that was made to stop running that old school model and start doing what Republicans are doing, which is one message that both drives strong turnout, but also pushes swing voters away from the Republican Party. And if we can transition that strategy of which this messaging then goes on to you know, teach and describe how to deploy, then we will have a very good odds of holding on flipping the House back. But the Senate is a very, very heavy lift in 2024. And obviously, if we don't win the presidency, it's game over for American democracy. So we need uh, at this point to get the rest of the map moving on this new electoral strategy. So it's really much broader than, hey, we have a messaging issue. There's been lots of work that tinkers in the trees of the Democratic messaging machine. To be clear, this book takes the tree by the roots, pulls it out of the soil and plants a whole new thing. Yeah, let's so let's um, I'm going to go out of the order I thought I was going to go in, but you brought this up. So Tim Ryan's race is really interesting. The messaging question there was Tim Ryan wanted to run a traditional Democratic race as a working class Democrat, not not appeal to the college educated, not not to uh, to to distance himself from uh, AOC and um, and. And anybody who thinks that AOC is the Democratic Party, which, by the way, love her, but she's not the Democratic Party. She's, a, well, she's one part of a very big Democratic Party. Yes, right. So he wanted, to, he wanted to distance himself. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, in the, in the, and, the, the point is, you can't distance yourself. Right. I mean, that there is no separation in the, in the Republican messaging that treats a Tim Ryan differently than AOC, the branding the arguments, the allegations, the hyperbole are all going to do that. Yep. Yeah. So, 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 um, I had this argument, this discussion, and it was a good discussion with Steve Bullock in Montana, who I heard once say, "Look, I'm not that kind of Democrat. I'm running as a different kind of Democrat." Yep. And that's I a bad said, kind of "You can't." I said, "Look, <laughs> that's going to cost every Democrat in the country another couple million dollars because." Um, it and confirms now, Republican now, talking points. Right? <laughs> He's certainly huh? not sitting in the Senate, is he? <laughs> no. I mean, but it, yeah, he lost. I, I like him. I don't want to give him a hard time. Yeah. Running as a Democrat in yeah. Montana is tough. But you can't, if you if, if we like decide, we that. are a big tent no. party. And that's a challenge. It's a real, we're not ideologically pure. We have a very big, diverse party. Um and I think that's a plus. But if we run away from it, we start running against each other. And that just helps the Republicans. And we've done it for years. Yeah. So you just said that Montana is a, a tough state for Democrats. You know what makes Montana a tough state for Democrats? Having our marquee candidates run around and tell people, yeah, but I'm not one of those Democrats. Because the opposition party's me- uh, messaging is don't vote for Steve Bullock. He's a Democrat and all Democrats are crazy socialists. 
And what Steve Bullock is telling the swing voter is, yes, they, they are crazy, but I'm not like them. You can count on that. Okay? Yep. And that is that is literally at the heart of why I quit my academic track and started working on this problem, because it is the wrong way to win elections. It is the wrong way to win in red states. It's the wrong way to win in swing states. Doesn't matter. You can't go and tell the electorate, yep, there's something wrong with my party brand, because as, as the front half of the book really lays out, at the end of the day, even though you don't hear this discussed on the television analyst very often, partisanship is what dictates vote choice for 90 percent of voters, including mostly independents who actually are closet partisans. And if you're not riding for the brand and selling the brand that you're associated with, that the Republican Party will never let you disassociate from, then we're going to lose these close, close contests. And so. You know, getting the Florida map last last cycle, we gave up three seats that we could have won in Ohio, North Carolina and in in Florida, where we were in the same strategy, you know, different candidates. But it was the same thing. Bio, I'm moderate. I'm bipartisan. I'm going to get things done. Look at my great record. I was a sheriff. I ride a motorcycle, whatever it is. Right. And at the end of the day, all three of those campaigns should have been defining the Republican opponent as a MAGA extremist who is coming for their health, wealth, freedom and safety. Yeah, <laughs> totally done with that. All right, let's let's slow down because we have some time to do it here. You you write about and, and I think you talked about it very briefly just now um, about partisanship and this notion that undecided voters are mostly a fiction. So talk about what your research showed about that because it has really interesting implications. Yeah, to be clear, it's not my research. I'm What I'm doing is trying to bring the an analyst practitioner election analysis world into the realm of deep, deep, long-term research from political science, okay? Because okay. you would be surprised to find out how few, of that, how few of the findings, especially the most fundamental findings in political science, are reflected when you hear a campaign manager talking on TV, especially on the left. And one of those things is the truth about independence. I mean, political science has been documenting for this for decades. It's really quite surprising that it, it never broke through. And that's why, of course, I, like I said, I, I started to do what I did. And that is when you look at data, election polling, hard results, whatever, year after year, decade after decade, if I know nothing about a person, I don't. I see a black dot. I don't see a face. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, young, old, educated or not, suburban, urban, rural, any of these things we always talk about as the determinant of vote choice. Okay. I don't need to know any of that. I just need to know, is this person a Democrat or a Republican or an independent that admits they lean one way or the other? And nine out of 10 times, I'm going to be able to predict who they're going to vote for a year out. Okay. No candidate related to it. No nothing. So that's how powerful partisanship is. And yet we have not we've built a system that not only does not incorporate that, it runs up right against it and and, uh, tries to basically tread water in a different direction. So um, unrelated to messaging, but related to that point about there are people who don't really want to call themselves Democrats, but they're leaning Democrat. Same on the Republican side. I've seen this shift Mostly since Trump was elected, the Democratic Party that I grew up with was big city mayors and unions. And anybody who wasn't part of the party, they didn't want to talk to. But now in certainly across the Great Lakes, where I think we've done a fabulous job, the Democratic parties have figured out that it's great to work with adjacent groups, swing left, uh, uh, you know, 
gun safety groups, um, pro-choice groups, people who, who don't want to say they're Democrats, but they really share the same values and politically are fighting for the same things. That's sort of your point um, when it comes uh, applied to organizing, I think. No, not really, actually. <laughs> okay, help me. Is that Can- we have to do. We have to do that because we don't we don't have any billionaires. I mean, we've got one and he doesn't spend his money well. We've got two and they both don't spend their money well. We don't have billionaires to build the infrastructure that the Republican Party has. So, like, for everything that we have that's like swing left, they have a hundred million dollar funded institution that with paid staff running the same thing. Do you see what I'm saying? So, you know, it's great that they're expanding. Here's the problem. And you just hit on it. A lot of these groups are 501c3s, nonpartisan. The issue, it's a policy issue that they're built around gun reform, whatever, right? And within those, the, the, you, know, you can get around these rules by filing separate organizations, you know, creating PACs to, to run next yep. to these organizations. But at the end of the day, those organizations can't be partisan. They can't say, hey, we need you to call Republican senators or Republicans killed the bill. And that's how and has helped allow us to develop a system, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, where we favor, public opinion favors us heavily in every area, pretty much every area, climate, guns, you know, whatever, yep. tax policy, health policy, education policy. And yet, you know, you'll see people go into a ballot booth in a state like Florida, okay? And they'll cast a ballot for higher, you know, higher minimum wage or free, or legal pot or whatever it is, some democratic issue. And that, and that 15% of those people will go vote for the Republican. Okay. So like the initiative will pass 67%. And then you look at the candidates on the ballot, the Republican wins 15% of those voters. Why is that happening? Because we're not naming the villain in our advertising, our messaging, all of the digital work that happens, all the door knocking stuff. When I say we're bleaching partisan out and partisanship out, the thing, the key determinative variable of everybody's vote choice by minimizing it, not mentioning, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Interesting. Really interesting. Okay. um, So, like, let me let me just add to that just for people to understand. Like, if you ask right now any Republican conservative person which party wants to steal your guns, they're going to tell you the Democrats. <laughs> like, it's not hard, right? But if you walk around and do the same question, which party supports a higher minimum wage, you just wait and find out. You're going to see the Democrats have done an awful, awful job of branding ourselves with these popular policies. Yeah, I totally agree with you. We need to stand for what we stand for, proudly. Um, but also Especially remind everybody really, who's terribly really popular. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's all really, really yep. popular. So like it should you be spend awkward, some, right? <laughs> you spend some time in the middle of your book um, on, a, on an important topic that's not quite about messaging, but really important. And that's this uh, discussion of third party efforts, no labels. You know, talk a, talk a little bit about about that and tell everybody why um, their offering is a fraud, which is, I think, what you said. What, what, their what? Their offering, offering the what they're offering yeah, the public. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, because they know that here at the end of the day, guys, it's very, it, this is a system that is structurally, the institutions of our democracy have shaped 
how we ended up with two parties, okay? There's a, you know, if it, a parliamentary system where the president is a prime minister, it comes out of the state, out of the, the parliament, the legislature, totally different outcomes are, are possible in those kinds of systems. But in our system, it has evolved and it has created, obviously, to evolve a two-party choice. And because it's also got this freakish device called the Electoral College, which no other country has, right? You win the plurality of votes in the parliament and so on a coalition government if you have to. But ultimately, like, you know, the vote is going to determine who wins in our system. It's specific states that matter, right? We, I mean, you know, um, swing states, right? And this, when we think about the disconnect between the Electoral College and the popular vote, the Electoral College, as we all learned to our horrible detriment in 2016, is going to be the deciding factor in that. And with the Electoral College, you know, it, it, it is very hard to get Electoral College votes. Most states have a rule where you have to get a majority or plurality, rather, of the, um, you have to be the top vote getter in the state and you get all of the state's Electoral Colleges. Almost all the states are like that total delegation. So it's not like they split up those by proportion, okay? And because of that, in the last and the most like, you know, robust third party run that we had, which was 1992, when Ross Perot ran along with George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton, the comeback kid. It was a three way contest. And Ross Perot was polling 20% of the vote, very robust. I mean, we're talking normally 5% at best going to a third party candidate. And, you know, he did come in and out of the race one time. But at the end of the day, when the votes were counted and the ballots were counted, Ross Perot ended up with about 20 percent of the American electorate voting for him. However, no one state gave him a plurality. So he had zero electoral college votes. So even stealing 20 percent of the popular vote from the other two candidates, this man only accomplished nothing because he could never have won a state and the Electoral College, you have to win many of them, right? <laughs> so right. that's why right. everybody who's ever talking about putting a third-party candidate up, even if they're very well-researched you know, researched and financed places like um, uh, no labels, okay, know what they're doing is ultimately determining who's going to get elected because they're milking voters away from the one of the two-party candidates. So it's a very terrible thing. It caught, I mean, we, without third-party voting, we wouldn't have had the first Trump presidency. And so, therefore, it would be a real damn shame to have this happen where American democracy it gets its final nail in the coffin because we can't get a rally around the obvious and good choice that is Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, this morning I read that the Green Party qualified in Wisconsin to have someone on the ballot this week. And that is not good news for the reason no, you never just good described. News. Yeah, never good news. I mean, Wisconsin's a state of the big three, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin's the most swingy of, th- of the three because it's the least big city and urban, therefore less suburban, less college-educated. And it will always be a razor wire in, in a place like Wisconsin. So, Yeah. Let's get to your counsel. You, you, you give us a recipe. Centralize your messaging. Um. And talk a little about what you mean by that, because it's the Republicans do it. They all say the same thing at the same time. We don't. How, how, how do you think that works? What is it? What do you exactly do you mean by like 
do we need an infrastructure to help us yes. uh, um, help us you know study message impact and pick the right messages for the week? No, that's the last thing we need, dude, because we have 15 of those already, and all they do is test liberal messaging designed by liberals for liberals that do nothing to win elections. So Mm -hmm. what we need is a centralized infrastructure that determines what the message is, gives it out to the party, and then like in the Republican Party, even if people think they have a better message, they just say the one that we created for them. And, you know, instead of talking about 400 different things and everybody's personal niche thing that they're into, because every member runs for Congress because they have some issue that that they are particularly interested in, what we have to do is accept that there's a difference between governing and running for office. We are trying to do our governing while we're running for office, and what we should be focused on is maximizing the probability of winning any given contest. So if you look how the Republican Party does it, and I lay this out in the CRT chapter, CRT is something that I, I, and I know almost everything, had never heard of in early 2021, okay? I had never heard the three-letter acronym CRT. By the end of that year, CRT is the, is the number one issue in Virginia's gubernatorial election. Every Republican runs on CRT from the state legislature to the three statewides that they ran in that cycle that they won all of, okay? And they all made it the central theme of their campaign. You will never sell me that sweater vest Glenn Youngkin gives a care about what's happening in the schools, okay, let alone what the curriculum is in school. What Glenn Youngkin is into is business, taxes, economic policy, things like that. Did he run on it? No, he didn't. Why? Because his strategist said, hey, if you talk and wedge this issue, you're going to win. And that's what he did. And that's what they all did. And so that's what I'm suggesting we build and deploy for Democrats. We got to stop telling people we're going to represent you in messaging because we're leaving we're leaving the power that we need to protect people off the table when we do that. So it's really about finding something like Roe, repeal, Dobbs, and freedom, and centralizing your message around one thing. Repetition is what matters. That's why even before the Hur report, voters' perception was about Joe Biden being mentally un- unfit for office. No one shares that view about Donald Trump. There's a 20-point gap between ben Biden's mental perception and Trump's before this weekend. Okay? <laughs> and, you know, the reason is, is because they're very good at, at always hammering that one thing across their ecosystem, across their digital work, and they have created a very strong perception of, of mental acuity dif- um, difficulties for Biden. It's a huge problem for us. We don't have any more time to make these pivots. We have to go to places like Florida and make sure that we're, you know, running a very centralized message down there that is about getting voters to not vote for Rick Scott rather than to buy a product nobody likes and no one wants to buy, which is politicians. Okay, so we need a message and repeat, repeat, repeat. And about that message, you say pivot, mock, attack. Right. Let's. Um, right. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. And let's model that for people so they know sure. what that's like. Right. So if I said to you, look, just use the one you just said. Look, the special counsel, they found that Joe Biden, Biden is a doddering old man with serious mental impairment. What do you right. say? And what? So what the White House is doing now is they're proving that he isn't right. <laughs> Which is a yeah. classic Democratic response. Okay, well, we'll just show people. And look, Biden did this. And here's Kevin McCarthy on record. He said 
this and this about how short Biden is. And I'm like, no, if you're doing my strategy, what you do is you drop $80 million on ads showing Trump lost on stage because he is constantly lost. His mind is not well. It is amazing to me that objectively we can see the decline in Donald Trump, and yet the public thinks it's Joe Biden that's senile. And so, you know, instead of defending Biden, you should be spending that money on branding Trump. So, okay, so you want to take the whole issue away in some sense by making it too painful for the other team to use it, right? Which I think they just did to themselves on the border this week. But um, you you want to just take the whole issue away. You want to say, uh, no, Joe Biden's a a genius, but Donald Trump, you know, what about Donald? Well, like, what about Donald Trump? He doesn't know, you know, who's who was in his cabinet. He doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know what state he's in. He doesn't know um, his ex-wife from the woman he raped. Right. That's what I'm saying. If you can't even remember who your ex-wife and the woman you raped is, I don't think you should be casting any stones about people's memory, right? Right. (laughs) So you've got to make it painful for them to go on that attack. And here's another one, right? Their whole protect kids thing. Every time a Republican says the word protect children around me, they're going to regret it because I'm going to go right after them on letting our kids get slaughtered at school by weapons of war. Why are our kids dying on a daily basis from guns? Because the Republican Party refuses to let us do anything sane on guns. And I will make them regret the phrase protect children if they say it in front of me. Uh, Yeah, they're not being killed by a book. Unless it's, you know, thrown from a very tall building, but they're being killed by guns, <laughs> right? I think some of those Harry Potter books might have done it, though, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Harry Potter I mean, and, the monster and, book. And <laughs> you make um, um, mockery part of this a little bit. Yeah. Talk about that as a strategy. Yeah, especially now, especially now, because, I mean, this is how we ended up in a world where there's two Earths. There's Earth, one reality, and that's the reality you see litigated in court, and that's why you see Donald Trump and Maga lose, lose, lose every time they enter a courtroom. But the rest of the the system is not constrained in that way. And in that, um, you know, system, the Republicans have artfully created an entire alternative reality. I mean, what started with alternative facts and Kellyanne Conway has devolved into a system in which 70 percent of the Republican identifiers in this country think really crazy things, guys. They think, A, the election was stolen, that Joe Biden was an illegitimate president. They think the COVID shots are more deadly than COVID and that anybody who had the COVID shot has basically got tainted blood. They think these things are true. They think Donald Trump is the most innocent person ever. He's never done a thing wrong is what they say. They don't say this or that or this technicality. In Madeland, it's all made up. Every single thing. There's nothing ever Donald Trump has ever done wrong to deserve the scrutiny that he's getting. And since we're dealing with what is, in effect, a mass psychosis event, the likes of which we've never seen in this country and only can look at countries like you know pre-Nazi Germany to compare to, is very, very dangerous. So the, what you have to do, and I think the House Democrats seized on this and did a great job with the strategy, which is strategic mocking, because, you know, in January of, of 2023, we swore in a new House of Representatives, a Republican majority that was living in a, a completely made-up world where the election was stolen and there's no insurrection. Those people are political prisoners and hostages. And what are they going to do with the control of the House? They're not talking about all this policy they want to make for the American people. No, no, no. Their first focus is we're going to investigate the investigators because 
you know, really just out, outside of the box kind of things, trying to subpoena DAs or in the middle of cases, criminal state cases that, that the federal government has absolutely no role in, right? And so I, my worry was that Democrats are going to do what we do, which is go in and prove the facts about how Biden and there's no evidence with Hunter Biden. And when you do that, you legitimate their Earth 2 reality. Once Earth 2 is legitimated, like with the big lie coverage, because keep in mind, when the big lie coverage began, it had it was preceded by months, literal months of reporting of you know the RNC, of Donald Trump, of Steve Bannon, of Bill Barr putting in the antecedents in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in other places to try to create what they called a red mirage, which is exactly what they did. The perception that they were winning on election night and that it would get stolen with them from them when the mail ballots came in. And yet, what did the media system do when Trump leveled the charge that it was all stolen from him? They treated it as something that had to be taken at face value and then debunked through evidence over the course of three months. As soon as they did that, guys, it was game over on that other side of the um of the population because they legitimated the illegitimate. And that's why strategic mocking, mocking people who are trying to make you defend or explain or talk about stuff that is facially ridiculous, the premise has to be mocked and not rebutted on evidence and facts. And it, it is the purpose of, of that because um, it, it won't, I mean, I mean, yes, it stops the spread of the lie. It makes it, makes it harder for more people to fall for it. Um, yeah, and it and maybe it doesn't convince the people who already have believed it to 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 see the light, but maybe it dispirits them. Maybe this is a voter suppression tactic, because in the end of the day, that's what Republicans have done. They've made it so that Democrats sometimes just don't want to come out and vote. And and you're saying you're sort of offering Democrats a path to do that for some of the Republicans. Well, I'm saying is well, you can take somebody like Hillary Clinton, who has a 60 percent approval rating as secretary of state. And within two years, use the congressional and committee process over an investigation. There was never any any premise to claim that Clinton had direct culpability for the Benghazi attack. We have a nation long dotted by foreign like um, things. Ronald Reagan blew up an Iranian passenger airline with 250 people on it by accident. Okay. Stuff happens when you're in charge of foreign policy. And instead of making that point that, that it should not be investigated, that the investigation itself was ridiculous. What did Democrats do? They played the game for two years. And the next thing you know, you can't get Hillary Clinton elected you know, in 2016. So we just can't afford to be dumb anymore, naive. Their system is designed on our naivety and, and, you know, gullibility. And so it's time for us to change how we respond and not be predictable. So talk more, tell people more what happened in Michigan, for example, and in Arizona. Oh, in Michigan and Arizona, we ran the strategies that were run in Michigan and Arizona were the new strategy. So going back right to the beginning of the conversation, old strategy, you have a universe of voters in a swing state, right? So say you're running in Wisconsin Senate and one universe is called the base and they need mobilization, you know, content. So Biden's going to forgive student loans or whatever it is. And then you have a persuasion bucket where your swing voters are. And there, how we approach it is selling the candidate on biography and moderation, bipartisanship. Okay. 
What they do is not that. They do one message. Democrats are scary socialists. They're going to steal all your money or your health care or give you a death panel or whatever version it is, right? Last cycle is crime. They're going to get you killed. And they are pushing that swing bucket away from voting for the Democratic candidate by ruining the brand, which dictates the vote choice. But they're also with that fear, you know, you know, a lot of it was crime. So black people coming to shoot you and kill you ads. Right. Um, that is pushing out their own base and their own independent leaders who tend to not necessarily be engaged in politics as much as actual, um, you know, out and out partisans would be. And so what we see in Michigan and Arizona is that strategy. Right. What did, what did Gretchen Whitmer do so well against her opponent, she defined Tudor Dixon as a MAGA Republican and made sure voters knew at least one thing about Tudor Dixon, because it's very hard to get voters to even know one thing about somebody. And that was that she wanted to ban abortion, that she was going to steal that, the, the women of Michigan's freedom, that she was dangerous, right? And it worked so well that by September, no one was worried about whether Michigan was going to stay blue. Yeah, and Arizona? And Arizona was the very same, so I'm not going to go back through the whole like strategic yep. shift part, but the message was yep. about, particularly in the Fontes race, which I did work directly on, and uh, there he defined his opponent, Mark Finchin, who was an actual insurrectionist, okay, guys, wanted yes, to be Secretary of State of Arizona, wanted to control the election process in Arizona, and ate what Adrian, you know, in the old system, when you say there's a, a tough state like Montana for Democrats, oh, well, then we must pretend you're not a Democrat and try to minimize that and talk about how you're going to be bipartisan in your bio. Adrian did not do that. He went to the voters of Arizona and said, if you're a sane Republican that believes in democracy, you need to vote for me because this guy is a threat to your vote. And it worked wonders. Yeah, he was on this show and he was great. Really first rate. Yeah, I love him. Uh, I love um, him. <laughs> We have we do have really talented candidates, and we have we really capable uh, government leaders in the Democratic Party. We do. Um, mm-hmm. um, they don't always inhabit the same body. <laughs> no, they don't. So, like Hillary Clinton, I mean, absolutely, probably, in my opinion, would have been the best president policy and, and doing wise that we could have ever imagined. But she is not Bill Clinton in terms of charisma. So, yep. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to have both in the same place. But the party as a whole, if we get together and stop apologizing for who we are and I mean, this shouldn't be this to go back to something you spoke about earlier, which was the race that Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia. At the time, I was sitting here in Chicago, pulling my hair out, screaming at anybody who would listen. How is it that a Democrat is going to lose to a Republican on the issue of education when the only thing Republicans have ever wanted to do is defund schools? How is that possible? There you go. How is that that possible? I was talking about that part of the book. Yeah, you were like, yeah, dude. I mean, like that's what my advice was, right? Like when I mean, you know, I'm like, look, you guys should be doing this. If they want to I mean, talk I, about education, you should be like bring a spider it on. with a web, right? Yeah, you bring be it like, on. We'll talk me, education. Yeah, <laughs> but let's talk about what you have, you fine folks have done to American K through twelve education since you invented Wherever that you have had the crazy chance. economic <laughs> thing, right? Yeah, yeah. and and it's yeah. about the macro story, folks. Like you know, like one of the things I'm tra- working on now and 
you know, hope to work on if we still survive after 2024 is reclaiming the economic mantle. The fact is, voters think Republicans are better on the economy. It's called issue ownership. It covered in the book. And yet we know that that's not true. Right. And we need to start telling people it's not 1992 anymore. So Reaganomics isn't 10 years in. We're 40 years in. And it's got a record. And that record is utter and total devastation, both of rural America and working America. We need to be people are angry about the economy. We need to direct their ire where it belongs. The people who took a really humming system and then got crazy with the you know, deficit spending, low tax policy and completely ruined American supremacy. Yeah. OK, so let's talk about rural America since you brought it up. Once again, Republican policies are responsible for closing schools in rural America, the, 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 the single thing that holds some of these communities together, hollowing out yeah. all the jobs, right? Yeah. Um, taking all investment in infrastructure and otherwise away from local communities. I mean, I know yeah. that, that, you know, Democrats are representing mostly people in cities now, but the Republicans have done a terrible job representing people in rural America. That, that, the outcomes are awful. How is it that we aren't like going right at them and saying, you happy with this? Look at this town. I mean, that's this is what 30 years. Look what's people, to if it. you're running a rural race or have a rural component of your district, instead of talking about your Democrat and how great they are, spend your money telling rural voters what the Republican Party has done to decimate their city, their town, their county, whatever it is. And if we, the reason people don't know that, to answer your question, is we don't tell them. They're not going to know it unless we do tell them. And that's what, you know, in rural races, that's exactly the message I want people to be running. This is what the you let the Republicans put, put them in charge, and they decimated everything, right? We've got to make them own their performance, and we never do that. Well, they have a lot more money to spend than we do, and so it's, it's been hard. But we've made some bad choices, for sure. No, it's not an accident. We have strategically sat here and watched them develop an institutionalized system over the course of 30 years that I'll lay, I lay out in the book. And I don't even cover but a fifth of it, maybe, right? Just yep. the most important component parts, much yep. bigger than what I described. And, you know, the, this idea that we can't, shouldn't, won't do it. Oh, wouldn't you know, we don't have this thing. And no one ever seemed to say, okay, but now it's time to build it. And so what I'm trying to do is like that fire under the parties, but get people to understand I hate big money in politics. I hate gerrymandering, but I'm not stupid enough to, to say I don't want money when the other party has 20, 20 billionaires, okay, <laughs> 20 billionaires, right? We can't fix the system. The rules are as they are. And our idealism is going to get many marginalized people killed if we don't continue to hold power while this Republican Party goes through the cult thing that it's going through. It is not a party that it can safely be in charge of the federal government right now. And we have to do everything we can to make sure it does not happen. I couldn't agree with you more. The only and I I think I think this is a friendly amendment. They can't be in charge of state governments either where they have done real. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, well, it was a pleasure catching up with you. We've run through an hour. I can't believe it. Um, (laughs) uh, The the book is, you know, unsurprisingly, if you've been paying any attention and listening to what uh, (laughs) what Rachel's been saying, it is hit them where it hurts. Um, And it is a it is a um, a plea and then a guide for how to be focused and aggressive and um, um. I, and to build the Democratic brand 
to, and to make the contrast between the crap show that's the brand on the other side. Is that fair? That's exactly right. Thank you, Rachel. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having on. And just remember, if you hear my voice, when they go low, we got to hit them where it hurts. Right. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, we're headed to Wisconsin with Ben Wickler. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And it is only because we are joined again by the fabulous Ben Wickler, the um, magician who has worked such great work in Wisconsin that I'm not going to take time out right now, but remind me to do it before the show is over to tell you what nonsense NBC's news uh, uh, brief just was. Nonsense about Joe Biden. Absolute nonsense. Um, And we'll come back to that later. All right, Ben, sorry about that. Oh, no. I completely agree. And I'm really glad to be on with you uh, on this particular moment. (laughs) So, so um, I don't know, like uh, Democrats have always had, and Democrats and their allies have always been running, you know, like, um, I mean, they're marathons and they're hurdles and you do like an ultra marathon and jump hurdles at the same time in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but now, oh my gosh, the nation's most partisan gerrymander is credibly threatened. Um, and it's a battle you've been fighting for more than a decade. So bring us up to speed. So it is, it's is a hold your breath moment. This is like the ball in the air over the end zone. Uh, Republicans have dominated Wisconsin policy, even though they're losing politically, they've dominated our policies and they almost overturned the presidential election in 2020. And they, they gave Trump the presidential in 2016, all tracing back to this one thing, the creation of the most intense partisan gerrymander in America. You can ask the Princeton Gerrymandering Project on the measure of partisan bias. Wisconsin is number one, not a claim I'm particularly proud of. But this moment is when it could all change because the current gerrymandered maps were put in place not by a Republican governor and a Republican legislature who agreed to gerrymander the state, but rather by a Republican Supreme Court who, after the governor vetoed the Republican gerrymander, the Supreme Court decided to enact it anyway. But then the Supreme Court justice, one of them who participated in that decision, uh, or I guess, yeah, he lost. They lost. (laughs) And so we had a a real sea change moment that that took place this year. There was a voter uprising, record turnout, a 10-point landslide for Janet Protosiewicz, to get elected to the state Supreme Court, I should say it was actually a retirement on the on the Republican side. It wasn't a um, uh, a, a participant in that gerrymandering decision. It was someone who had been involved in previous ones. But yep. we defeated this ultra mega candidate in the spring, and now Janet Protasiewicz is on the Supreme Court. Republicans, uh, they apparently were so allergic to democracy that they decided to try to impeach the newly elected Supreme Court justice before she'd ruled on a single case to stop her from being able to hear an argument about whether the maps that the Republicans had chosen were constitutional. But another grassroots uprising shut down that impeachment attempt, and they backed off of it. And then the Supreme Court, uh, 4-3 majority, decided to take up this case, heard the arguments, ruled that the maps were unconstitutional, and has now said that they're going to choose new maps by March 15th so that they'll be in place for the 2024 elections. They have experts, nonpartisan experts, who've reviewed submissions to the court, 
they're likely to choose one of those. It's possible that this could happen in the legislature or it could happen through the uh, yeah, at this point, because the legislature sees the writing on the wall or it could happen through the Supreme Court. But one way or another, it is now the overwhelming likelihood that Wisconsin is going to have maps that are vastly more fair, where voters in every corner of the state have a chance of actually being represented by their state legislature. And if that happens, Wisconsin, which has been you know, democratic in most statewide elections for the last uh, 10 years, it could start having policies that look more like a purple state or a blue state instead of a bright, deep red state. We're one of only 10 states that has an expanded Medicaid, for example. We yeah. have uh, we have Republicans who just passed another abortion ban through the legislature. The governor vetoed it. They are, you know, they are absolutely refusing to listen to the public, but the public is going to change who does the listening. So we're going to have some democracy in the Badger State. I, I, you know, what are, the maps are not going to be the maps that you would draw, right? They're never, they're going to be, um, they're not going to lean over and be partisan Democratic maps. So, so they're going to be maps that you might have, take some, um, um, you, you might be uncomfortable. And yet, no matter what map they draw, I mean, if they close their eyes and drew maps, it'd be more fair than the maps they have today. So, so it's almost impossible that they won't be better. That's that's right. No, you have to be um, incredibly, incredibly focused on only maximizing Republican control to get the maps we currently have. There's a, a table in the, the report by the nonpartisan consultants to the Supreme Court that shows something called majoritarian concordance, which is mm-hmm. if the majority of the public votes for one party, what are the chances that that party gets a majority in the legislature? And the maps, the there are four maps under serious consideration. In each of those maps, if Democrats win a majority of the votes in Wisconsin, they have a two-thirds chance of winning a majority of the seats. So that's, you know, I would like it to be, like, I think it would be good if it was in both sides it was closer to 100. But two-thirds suggests that there's some way that the public can say, we don't want these people in charge anymore. And under yep. the current maps, it's under 10%. It's, you know, it has nothing to do with what the public wants. So, right. it's, you know, you're, you're right. There's, this is by no means it is, it is the opposite of a Democratic gerrymander. It is a small d ungerrymander. It is a it is a, a possibility that the, as it says in the Capitol, in the famous words of fighting Bob will fall at the will of the people shall be the law of the land. That's what we don't have now. That's what every citizen of this country should expect from their government. And we have an example. I mean, Michigan had... Uh, an independent commission. The, the mechanics were a little different, but they ended up with breaking their gerrymander. It did not make all Democrats happy, the map they came up with. And yet it allowed the people to speak and they spoke loudly at their first chance of ending the sort of uh, capture that they felt was that's, imposed upon. That's them. absolutely right. The public is infuriated by the way that their government has been torn away from them. And they're fed up. There was this polling that the, the Republican legislative majority is incredibly unpopular. I think Robin Boss had like a 17 percent, either Republican assembly speaker, 17 percent approval rating in Wisconsin. People know that there's something wrong. And they I was going to ask you about that. I'm just going to ask you about that. Yeah. I mean, how is it possible? I guess I'm going to let you tell everybody how it's possible because it's so much fun that the Republican legislature in your state is less popular than, oh, I don't know, the Chicago City Council. 
it's, it's over and over. They they are they they refuse to do the bare minimum that the public wants them to do, and they don't they don't work for very long. I think they're like done for the year uh, within a, a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> they take off most of the year at election years to go to go campaign for their their terrible ideas. But there are so many things that have like eighty plus percent support that they refuse to do. The the bare minimum common sense gun safety legislation. They refuse to do red flag laws that that allow guns to be removed from domestic abusers who police deem pose an immediate threat. Like they they have refused to be even minimally pretending to believe in democracy and the idea of majority rule. When they're asked about this, they say they represent their constituents. Yeah, well. They yeah. chose their constituents. <laughs> like it is, yeah, I mean, it is preposterous. So, so it's two things, right? You, you do like they don't. They, they just thinking about a legislature, thinking about it as someone understands government. They don't do the policy things. They don't do the work of government that the people of Wisconsin want. But they also, everybody has a sense that this isn't fair play. They're also cheating, and I just That's you right. know even people who don't agree with them on policy. I mean, are pissed off about that. I mean, it's like in Ohio when they tried to change the Constitution um, so that they couldn't have an, a, a, a constitutional amendment to protect abortion. Even people who didn't agree didn't like the cheating. That's exactly right. And people, have been, you know, it's one of the most basic, fundamental, it seems like it's hardwired from all the science around it, ideas yeah. is, is basic fairness that people that yeah. you should have you know equal treatment and they just don't abide by that principle they they put their middle finger up at it every day and Wisconsin voters feel that they can kind of tell who's you know I think voters often more than pundits recognize can tell who's on their side can tell who actually respects them and there's this deep sense of disrespect for what most Wisconsinites want and believe and, and who they are that we get from our, our Republican legislature because fundamentally they're accountable to a handful of mega mega donors one of them wrote a two million dollar check at the end of this last year to the Republican Assembly Speaker and his campaign committee, that's who they're accountable to, not the public. Yeah, well, well that's why Robin Voss is as popular as Headlice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, People when aren't stupid. That matters, it's your, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and this year, uh, you know, cross your fingers, the public will actually get a chance to do something about it. It'll be like a, a giant so exhalation. First. Yeah, it's, it's so, so exciting. exciting. Yeah. All right. So the, let's talk about something else. Um, you know, Wisconsin is, I mean, we're talking about making it fair, but in fact, the voters, it's a pretty split city, um, red and blue at the moment. And we're just talking about like having a fair shake, not like waving a magic wand and turning the state. Absolutely. From, you know, That's right. But, but the reddest parts are rural, like they are in the rest of the country. And I don't understand it. I can, because when you look at what Repu- Republican governance has done to rural America, it's a travesty. I mean, you know, the, the only institution in a place is a school and they close them or the hospitals shut down. Or they provide no infrastructure. I mean, rural America has suffered amazingly under Republican rule in every state. How is it how we can carry that message out there? You know, I was uh, earlier today reading the book, The Reasoning Voter by Samuel Popkin. He's a political scientist. And he points out that the more an issue is at the center of a political campaign where both sides are making arguments, laying out their position, running ads, the more people understand where each party stands on that issue. But the issues where there's not a big public fight about them 
people just assume that the party that they usually vote for is on their side on that issue. And so you wind up with a situation where if Democrats don't take the fight to Republicans on rural health care, for example, on rural hospitals, mm-hmm. then rural voters then rural voters won't have a chance to find out that in fact it's Republicans who are causing those hospitals to close. I mean, that is happening right now in Wisconsin. We just had uh, multiple hospital closures in in, uh, northwestern Wisconsin and central Wisconsin, in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. And if we expand Medicaid, that means significantly more revenue that's coming into these rural hospitals. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of cultural issues and deeply personally held uh, religious and cultural beliefs that can lead people to decide not to vote for Democrats. But I think mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. I think the thing that Democrats have to do, and I will credit Governor Evers, Tammy Baldwin, I think they really do a good job of this. You have to go to rural areas as Democrats or be from rural areas like <laughs> Governor Evers and make the case for whose side you're on, how you're sticking up for them, and explain what Republicans are doing. So many Republican voters are getting information only from right-wing talk radio and Fox News and, you know, the the things that are circulating in their communities never, ever, ever, ever explain the policies that Republican politicians have put in place and how they harm those very voters. And that means that it has to be the activists, the campaigns, the, the, the candidates, uh, you know, the Democratic Party out there making the case and breaking through that bubble with that information, showing people that we, in fact, are on their side, even if we don't disagree on everything. We will fight like hell for their right to see a doctor when they need it, to retire with dignity, to have public schools that don't have to shutter their doors. I mean, this is basic stuff that is at the heart of what Democrats stand for, and it works at least as well in rural America as it does in, in the rest of the country when it comes to making a positive difference in people's lives. Yeah, we just need to have candidates everywhere. And you've done do. a good and job of that. I will it's say, hard. I appreciate that. This, the thing about the fair maps is that it opens the door to people in all parts of the state, including in rural areas, who have always thought about running for office but didn't want to run if it was a fool's errand and they were guaranteed to lose. So suddenly this election cycle, if these maps come into place, knock on wood, you know, some set of maps that, that approaches the, the standard of fairness, People who have who have built great relationships throughout their communities, who've dedicated their lives to, to serving the public and making things better, will finally throw their hats in the ring and not just run, but run great campaigns and actually be able to you know, find the, the resources to get their word out and have the volunteers fired up. It is a it is a rebirth of democracy in in uh, outstate Wisconsin uh, for, for folks who. For a very, very long time, I've been starved of the opportunity to see a local champion who stands up for the values that they want represented in Madison at the state capitol. And that, that is, is how it should always work. But it is such a sea change from this ossified situation that we've had where huge swaths of the state were drawn so that no Democrat could win, even though there are lots of Democrats living there. I mean, I, you know, if you look around the country... Sometimes it's independent candidates. I'm, I'm fine with that. I just want people to have a real choice and have someone who represents the majority of people's actual interests uh, on the ballot making their case. And when that happens, I think it'll help uh, not only change the, com- the composition of the state legislature, I think it helps Tammy Baldwin and her Senate race. I think it helps the Biden-Harris administration because having grassroots Democrats and independents who are fed up with the ex- mega extremists fired up and going out to the polls, that makes democracy stronger. Yeah, I've talked about this with other people, but you and I haven't talked about it. I think this year there are going to be reverse coattails. You know, people who come out for school board races 
who then stay to vote in Senate and presidential races um, that might not otherwise have done it because because the negativity around things has made them turned off. Is that is that you're going to see that in Wisconsin? Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And I know, you know, this election cycle, there are already candidates or candidates close to running in every congressional district. We just found out Mike Gallagher, the Republican congressman, is not going to run for reelection. So it came out this morning. Uh, so there's going to be competitive races. I know. I mean, he didn't vote to impeach Mayorkas. And now his county Republican county chairs are like an uprising against him. But it just shows, I mean, he's a right-wing guy. The, the fact that there's, you know, I don't they're know, eating their own primary. Exactly. They're in a civil war. <laughs> it is, they're leap, leapfrogging each other into the fever swamps. And this is, yeah. this is the, the political landscape of the state. I, I really do think we're going to have strong local candidates, candidates for, for county executive in November, candidates for the, you know, all these different offices who are going to drive out voters who then will you know, maybe start at the bottom of the ticket and then get to the top. Uh, I do think it makes a big difference. And I think that this is one of the kind of uh, underappreciated aspects of these last few years, the intensity with which people have engaged in the fight for democracy at the local level and in house districts, all these things below the presidential level. We haven't seen the presidential level where it, it is as clear as it's going to be this time, how that translates into what happens at the top of the ticket. But I, I can't wait to see it. Well, so you're going to unleash an enormous amount of, of civic energy that's been bottled up by these by these maps that have meant that voting is meaningless in parts of the state. This this is now going to be enormously energetic and exciting to watch. And this this force is going to be released right before the gathering of Republicans in Milwaukee. Like, what what is that going to be like? I mean, I, and, and do you have any counsel for the I don't know million and a half Chicagoans who want to march there <laughs> and stand outside and protest? <laughs> like, don't do it. Well, I mean, or, or do it. I mean, like, what's your thinking? I'm, I think the most important thing will be uh, if you're you know in Chicagoland, come up to Wisconsin and join some local Democrats to knock on doors in their communities. Like, we want to be where the people are. It's like Ariel from the Little Mermaid. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's how we win this thing. I, you know, when we had the when we had the fight against the Republican impeachment attempt this last fall, uh, you know, people were brainstorming: what do we do? What do we do about this threat to overturn a landslide election that Republicans are trying to do? This power grab, and a lot of you know people people with good uh, good intentions and good ideas said, "Let's march on Madison," but the strategic decision ultimately was, "Let's march." down the streets and knock on doors and talk to voters in the Republicans' yeah. own districts. Because yeah. they, them hearing from their constituents, not from some, you know, a mob of activists outside their, their work office, but from their constituents, that this was something they didn't want. Tons of Republicans in Wisconsin, even with the gerrymander, when we had an 11-point landslide, tons of Republicans lived in districts that Janet Protasiewicz won in the Supreme Court race. And those folks started realizing that their constituents were overwhelmingly opposed to impeachment. And that made the difference. And I, well, yeah. I want to... At every moment, this election cycle, let's go back to the voters. Let's build those relationships, have those conversations. That is the way that we stop Trump from getting reelected. All right. And, uh, talk about Tammy Baldwin's race for a minute. Tammy Baldwin is such a, a wonderful human being and a political force of nature. 
because she combines these two critical things. On the one hand, she is decent. She is warm. She is relatable. She is somebody who goes to every part of the state and listens to people and connects with them. And on the other hand, she is a fighter, a fighter against special interests. She is the person who wrote the bill to cap insulin costs at $35 a month. She wrote the thing in the Affordable Care Act to allow uh, young people to stay on their parents' health insurance until age 26. She, over and over again, goes up against the biggest special interest in this country, and she actually wins. Now, the great thing about that is that voters know that she's on their side. She's the biggest champion of Buy America provisions in federal legislation, for example. There are, there are workers who, who normally vote Republican who tell her, I'm voting for you because I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for you. But it also means that special interests just hate her. And so the amount of money from the, the really well-heeled giant companies that you know have, have had to bring down their prices because of her legislation, who are going to come after her, cannot be underestimated. There's a mega self-funder who owns a bank, a guy named Eric Hovde, who uh, it's a California bank. He was voted one of Orange County, California's most influential people two years in a row. He... I, ran in a primary in 2012, lost the primary, so he didn't run against her that year. But he's moving back and coming back. As, as Tammy put it on TV, he was chosen by Mitch McConnell to move back to Wisconsin, try to defeat her and ban abortion. And she's going to have a fight on her hands. So I, even though there's no announced Republican candidate in this race right now, I want anyone listening to know it's not just the presidential electoral college majority that's on the line in Wisconsin, and it's not just this once-in-a-generation chance to reset our state legislature. It is also the Senate majority, which means it's the Supreme Court. It is every bill that might come through. Tammy Baldwin has to win, and she's going to have a serious fight on her hands. And I'm just waving the flag right now. We want folks to come and help because we've got to do everything we can to cross the finish line. I mean, Ben, the contrast between Tammy Baldwin, warm, interested in people, champion of people, fights uh, special interests versus the lobbyist who is your other U.S. senator. It's, I got, it, it's schizophrenic <laughs> in one state. <laughs> this is what it means to be a purple state. I, when I point out to people that Ron Johnson and Tony Evers won in the same year and about four and a half percent of the state voted for both of them, it blows people's minds. Uh, you know, yeah, compared no, to Tammy Bolton or Ron Johnson. Uh, it, it, in 2018, one in 10 Wisconsin voters voted for Scott Walker and Tammy Bolton at the same time. This is, you know, there's this idea that the swing voters mythical. No, Wisconsin has. It has inconsistent Democrats who, who don't always vote. We need to mobilize and turn them out. But we also have ticket splitters and swing voters who are more than the margin of victory in almost every election. Like, you have to do both persuasion and turn out in Wisconsin. And the good news is that the core things Democrats stand for are widely popular. The way that Republicans win is by shifting attention to these these kind of fringe issues where they think that they can crack apart the Democratic coalition. But on the core stuff that the government works on, including questions of freedom, Tammy Baldwin's the lead sponsor of the Women's Health Protection Act, which would extend abortion uh, mm -hmm. protections to everyone in this country, and on questions of democracy, and on questions of building middle-class prosperity. Most people agree with Democrats, and when the election is about those things, Democrats win. And our job right. is to make this election about those things. Yeah, hence my anger at the NBC News brief that ran before you got out, because it was oh. nonsense about nothing. Yeah. Um, we have a big, tough job ahead. I can't think of... 
uh, you know, a state that's in better hands um, for the challenge. I mean, it's like you and your team are, you know, and the Democrats in that state, you couldn't design fit for purpose for the moment we're in. Um, and the whole country is just so fortunate <laughs> that it's you guys that it, it might actually put an end to this capture of voters that is, you know, then you can teach the people in Ohio. Well, I'm a good friend of the Ohio chair, Liz Walters. She is a machine. She's an extraordinary leader, and you can see it in the abortion referendum and their defeat of the anti-democracy referendum Republicans put on the ballot in order to stop the abortion referendum. So, yep. uh, you know, if you... They're making progress, too. They're just a little behind you. Yeah, go to Ohio. <laughs> exactly. They've, they've got a few years to, to go. But after you're done knocking doors for Tammy Baldwin and Joe Biden and our legislative candidates, head over to Ohio and help elect Sherrod Brown for another term, because that's, that's another must-win Senate race this cycle. Yep. Yep. Well, Ben, always great to catch up. And I owe you this a week off. You and I share a birthday. So happy belated birthday. Hey, happy birthday to you. Yep. Yep. Um, and you'll be happier uh, when I see your new maps. <laughs> It'll be like the clouds party. I, I cannot wait. When, when is that? It might be the middle of March. Let the state Supreme Court has set a deadline of March 15th, and that's the date where if they if they meet that deadline, then there's plenty of time for the Elections Commission and local districts to print the ballots properly, and candidates start collecting signatures on April 15th, um, turn them in in June, primary August 13th, and then the election in November. That is my year. I just, I, is it, is it, was it purpose that the dictatorial maps could be killed on the Ides of March, like Caesar was? Is that really what happened? <laughs> it's also my wife's birthday, so that, that's a, a, a big day to celebrate. Yep, yep. Well, Ben, congratulations. It's great to catch up. And, um, you know, I send people up your way all the time. It's just so important. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me on. I'm really grateful. Take care. All right, everyone, we're going to take a break, and then we are going to turn uh, to the author of Unholy, Sarah Posner. We have a conversation about uh, that sort of grew up after Iowa about uh, the evangelical movement and its place in the world we live in. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Sarah Posner, author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, uh, is back with us. I told you last time she was here, she's my go-to source for expertise on the fusion of the religious right in today's GOP. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Edwin. How are you? Thank you. I am good. I am good. I sit at the top of the show. I know you're a reader. I took some time off this week to finish a long novel, which gave me um, a moment to reflect on the week's news as opposed to react to it in real time. And, and upon mm-hmm. reflection, wow, what a week the Republicans had. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the worst since Lincoln was assassinated, I think. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what was the book you read? Uh, it was um, it was called Seven Eves. It's a science fiction uh, uh, piece by Neil Stevenson. And, oh, okay. You no, know, he's a uh-huh. he's a good writer. Um, yeah. Yep. You know, I get my books from the public library digitally, so I sign up for a whole bunch, and then they come when they come. But then right, you only exactly. have so much time to finish them. So, yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so I. I 
been meaning to talk to you since the Iowa caucuses, because, okay. uh, you know, Iowa just brings evangelical politics to everybody's attention for about 10 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, right. It, it may, right. And the 10 minutes may be all short because the turnout was so terrible. But nonetheless, that that um, that gave, you know, them a chance to remind everyone that Donald Trump is the anointed one. Um, how do how do we. I, I, I was challenged a little bit to understand that because Ron DeSantis spent a lot of time and money in Iowa, and he offered a very focused and, you know, very full-throated attack on all their traditional boogeymen, right? All the yeah, things yeah. that the evangelicals are most angry about. Oh, my gosh. Uh, DeSantis was angry, too, and doing something about it in legislation in his state. I mean, he was putting that theocracy into law in Florida, yep. and yet he got his yep. hind end kicked by the evangelicals in Iowa. So either they don't mean what, what I always thought they meant, or what they really mean is we have found our Messiah and we're sticking with him thick and thin. Yeah, that is the latter part, the latter uh, part of what you said is absolutely right. I wrote uh, in my MSNBC column after the Iowa caucuses that the caucuses proved that Donald Trump is now not only the leader of the GOP, but the leader of the Christian right. What you saw in Iowa was an attempt to recapture how presidential primaries used to be for Republicans, right? And how it used to be before Trump was that all of the political reporters would rush to Iowa and they would interview people like Bob Vanderplatz, who's the head of an organization called the Family Leader. It is, you know, it it has sort of the standard fair white evangelical uh, agenda. Uh, and he used to be seen as a kingmaker in Iowa. You got Bob Vanderplatz's endorsement that went a long way towards convincing evangelical voters in Iowa that you were the right guy or woman, but I'm not sure he ever endorsed a woman, uh, to be the Republican nominee. Vanderplatz comes out with this statement against Trump. He endorses Ron DeSantis. And what happens? Donald Trump wins anyway. And so I think what we're seeing is Trump has kind of obscured or eviscerated the role of what we might call these middlemen between the voters and the candidates. He's completely eliminated that. And so the voters don't want to hear from Bob Vanderplatz or anybody else about who that person thinks the right leader of the Republican Party should be because they've already decided that Donald Trump is God's anointed and that's that. I don't know how to think about this because all my life I've had a, I'm not deeply religious man, but I've had a great deal of respect for religion and for people who are and for the theological work that people you know, a faith um, sometimes engage in. Um, and I don't, know, I don't even know where to, I don't know how to understand this movement in the tradition of religion in America when you can, you can read the Bible and then say, the guy is, you know, okay, so he was found to be a rapist and a fraud mm-hmm. and a slanderer. Um, mm-hmm. And he might be a traitor. <laughs> you know, we're going to find out all that stuff through the courts. 
doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I don't know how to put my head around that. Well, I think that there are a few things going on here. I mean, one is that Trump's supporters live in a different media ecosystem than you or I do in the Mm -hmm. sense that they don't read the New York Times or the Washington Post. That's the fake news. Um, And they are instead in their own bubble of their social media and their media outlets and the you know, newsletters or emails blasts that they get from the organizations who they trust. And so in that view and in the view of Trump himself, what he tries to impress upon upon them through, you know, the texts that his um, campaign sends out, the emails his campaign sends out, his true social posts, his campaign rally speeches, is that he's a victim. He's a victim of a witch hunt. He's a victim of the fake news media. He's a victim of, you know, corrupt judges and corrupt politicians. And so because they have been convinced over a long period of time to believe news coming directly from a source like Trump or news from their own trusted news sources, they believe that, too. And so... Trump's base is completely in the thrall of this idea that he not only is he God's anointed one, but all of these uh, uh, indictments and civil trials against him are part of a corrupt system that is trying to bring down somebody they believe to be anointed by God to lead America. So if you're wrapped up in that kind of mindset, you're going to think you're you're going to believe that that Donald Trump is being persecuted and that it's your duty to support him in the face of the, this persecution because God has chosen him to make America a Christian nation again. Okay, so I I mean, there's a whole literature about messianic movements and how they end, and it's not ever pretty. So if Donald Trump loses and loses badly in this next election. Mm -hmm. Where Mm -hmm. do these people who believe that he is anointed by the Lord to come down and, and, and lead us who knows where, what, what happens to them? Are they, is this a shock that to the system that makes them question that faith? Is it um, something that makes them uh, take up arms against the rest of us? What, what, what's the likelihood? Well, I mean, that's, that's, obviously the worry. I mean, we saw what happened on January 6th, and we saw that a lot of the people participating in January 6th were saying, you know, Christian-inflected things. They were carrying Bibles. They were carrying Christian flags. They were, you know, using this kind of rhetoric, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, And so there was undoubtedly um, a a religious component to January 6th. And so it's extremely worrisome, obviously, because we already know that there are people who believe that, you know, like their signs said on January 6th, Jesus is my savior, but Trump is my king, uh, that, you know, that they were willing to go to those lengths to try to overturn the results of the election. And now we see after January 6th that white evangelicals are among the 
the largest group or the group that has the largest percentages of people who believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump and that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States. So the question of what are they going to do if Trump loses in 2024 is a very potent and scary one because we already know that there's been violence. Uh, and even if there isn't violence, the idea that some not insignificant segment of the country would think that Joe Biden, not only in his first term, but a potential second term, is not the legitimate president of the United States has, you know, obviously very serious impacts on, uh, you know, how our democracy functions. Because also uh, the shenanigans that you see being run by the Republicans as they control the House um, is driven a lot by the fact that they know that their base is behind them because their base believes that, you know, the Democratic Party is part of the deep state that's trying to bring down America. Right. Well, Well, I don't worry too much. In part, I'm comforted by this. There were fewer voters that night in the Iowa caucus than there are in three Chicago wards. You know, the attention it got far beyond right. what it deserved by numbers, right? And well, this is, but this is, a, this is the thing about the Iowa caucuses. They, the Republican voters in the Iowa caucuses are not at all representative of America, but they're very right. representative of white evangelicals and therefore very representative of the Republican base. Yeah. And so I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, right? Yeah. Because yep. they're they are not a majority. They can't make up a majority. They weren't. They didn't. You know, Donald Trump didn't win the majority of of the country uh, in 2020. And you know, if that happens again, right? But the, the 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 problem is that they control the Republican Party. So what happens on January 6, 2025? Right? And so, like that. That's the thing that I worry more about. And the question of whether they're representative of America. We know that they're not representative of America. We can have a fairly high confidence that they, you know, like in 2020, could you know be outvoted by the rest of America. Yeah. But but they they control the Republican Party, and that's the real well, issue. So here's my my response to Republicans based on this. We, the rest of us, will maintain the rule of law. We will maintain our democratic traditions, whether you like them or not. And if you, you know, decide to repeat January 6th, we'll be ready for you. There's still more rooms in jails across the country. And you know what? <laughs> uh, if that's the future you want, that's a future you can have. Look what you've done to Congress. The damage being done to the world by what the Republicans can't figure out. We have a border bill today. We don't have one tomorrow. We have support for Ukraine one day. We don't have it the next day. What are we going to do in the Middle East? None of them. None of it happens because the Republicans are busy shooting each other um, over this mm-hmm. issue. Terrible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrible. Okay, let me, I want to ask you about something else related. Um, I was um, looking at Greg Sargent's uh, stuff because he was on the show last week. And so mm-hmm. I was looking at his podcast about, like, why is the evangelical community doing Trump's work to bury Nikki Alien? Wow, there you were. So the answer to that question <laughs> yep, was, was, like, ask Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, it, like, is, it, is it just the same answer? They'll do whatever it takes for Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I think, I think the thing with Nikki Haley is that I don't think 
so so Ron DeSantis tried the I'll try to be Trump 2.0 approach. And that didn't work for him. And so certainly taking the approach uh, that Haley is taking, even though to her credit, she's taking it, maybe not as robustly as I would want to see her take it. But the, the approach of you know criticizing Trump, uh, that's certainly not going to work. I think she's aiming to draw out Republicans who are leery of Trump. They exist, but they're certainly not the majority. This is not how she, you know, anybody is going to win the Republican presidential primary. Uh, The other piece of it with Haley, I think, is that there is a not insignificant segment of the Republican electorate who doesn't think a woman should be president. So that's like a huge strike against her. Uh, And also, I think that even though, you know, her family you know, were immigrants from India, they were sick and she converted to Christianity. I still think that given her background, there's so much bigotry uh, in the Republican Party and among white evangelicals. But that's probably a strike against her, too. I think she was a popular governor of South Carolina, which has a lot of white evangelical voters in it. But I think for a lot of these voters in in the first place, the presidency to them is different from the governorship. And mm-hmm. on top of that, Trump has already, you know, there's not, there's, there's not anything, there's not another candidate that would cause them to reconsider their support for Trump. Okay. So now I got to ask you about evangelicals in their place in, in Christian America. Again, something I don't understand very well. But the, the group you're describing, these, these white evangelicals say God intended America to be a Christian nation, a white nation. Mm-hmm. The nation is strayed, mm-hmm. so it's their obligation to fight spiritually, politically, by any means, to save our nation's soul, right? But there are millions of Christians in America. There's even a pope mm-hmm. in uh, the Vatican who disagree profoundly with many of the evangelical yeah. beliefs. And now I'm, I'm yeah. not talking about political disagreement. I'm also talking about, you know, sort of theological and spiritual disputes. So, so, um, I mean, for example, really the belief that God anointed someone to rule in America, that is not, I don't believe the view of most Christians in America. So, is it reasonable for the rest of America to describe white evangelicals as a looking to create a nation in their own image and b um, um, to understand them as um, potentially alienating the rest of Christian America? Well, I'm just trying to think for a second about whether there's been polling on whether the uh, white evangelicals are alienating other Christians. They're alienating the black church for sure, right? Well, I mean, yeah, but okay, but I guess so. Your question is what? Whether that can it? It looks like a you know it looks like a. Christianity is big and it's diverse everywhere in the United States, mm-hmm. more so than most places. Right. One, right. one segment of that diversity, one sect, whatever it is, um, has said, my way or the highway, We right, for the whole country, my way or the highway, Christian, non-Christian, all of it. We are going to do it. It's going to be our way. And yeah. there are lots of other aspects of 
of, of Christianity in America that don't behave that way. You, you talked about one who used to be the head of the white evangelicals in Iowa who said Donald Trump isn't our guy, and he got rolled over. Yeah. Well, I think that the reason why white evangelicals seem to have such dominance over the rest of Christian America and over our politics is because they have their own ecosystem where they have a lot of really well-funded religious organizations and political organizations and televangelism and megachurches. And it's not necessarily completely homogenous theologically. There are theological disputes within, you know, that, that you might, you or I might consider mm-hmm. minor uh, within all of this, but they're basically all on the same page about the larger picture, the larger uh, elements of what we would call Christian nationalism, that America was founded a Christian nation. It has, you know, secularism has caused that to fall away. And it's our duty to ensure that the Christian nation is restored as God intended it to be. Um, and so when you have that kind of block, which also makes up probably about like 30 to 40 percent, 30 ish percent of the Republican electorate, it's really hard to organize a block of other Christians to combat it. And the other piece of it is that a lot of this ideology has permeated mainline Protestant churches, conservative mainline Protestant churches, too. So it's not necessarily confined to evangelicalism. There are a lot of uh, conservative Catholics who are basically aligned with white evangelicals. So it's really hard to organize, say, Catholics, right, against that, because Catholics themselves are split on questions relating to you know, LGBTQ rights, abortion and contraception, all of that. So it's their homogeneity, their well-fundedness, their building over many decades of an infrastructure that works both in the religious world and in the political world, and the fact that we have a two-party system and they basically control the Republican Party. So it's just really hard for the Democratic Party to, which has a much more diverse in every conceivable way base and a much more fractious base, honestly, right? Fractious in terms of like having disagreements with each other. So mm-hmm. all of those conditions would make it really difficult for there to be an organized religious movement to counter the, okay, the religious fair. right. The most potent possibility would be a movement that's against theocracy and for democracy, regardless right. of what your own religious uh, tradition is. So um, I raise my hand for that. I am not for theocracy. Um, right. I, I am appalled by some of the things I hear from this movement. <clears throat> um, and I'm, I'm just trying to check my temperature because I don't want to be intolerant, but I also don't want to be helpless in the face of intolerance. And it's a, it's a, it's a tough place to be. Um, well, I don't think, I don't it. think, I don't think that exactly. They know it. That, that's the important point because they're always going to 
raise the persecution claim. That if you going, disagree with you that, read my mind. You read my you're mind. Persecuted if a Democrat us, or they, heaven forbid a journalist says white evangelicals want to de- dominate our country. By the way, something well, that, have, that those have, evangelicals yeah. have said about the rest of us. <laughs> right, right, right. right. They, they've said that about us for 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. Now, if we say it about mm-hmm. them, they say it's religious bigotry. Yes. Anti-Christian mm-hmm. bigotry. And I want to mm-hmm. say to them, that is a flat out lie. Look in the mirror. Right. Because, yes, we, our Constitution protects religious freedom, but your religious freedom does not allow you to say, for example, take away somebody else's rights. Like, for example, a lot of the anti-trans legislation that has been coming up and getting passed in state legislatures around the country is driven by Christian right organizations. They're the ones who are propelling this horrific train uh, running over the rights of trans people. And so your religion doesn't give you the right to take away somebody else's rights. And I think that the Constitution is quite literally, you know, interpreted that way. But because they're Christian supremacists, right, you have to acknowledge that they're Christian supremacists, which is why they believe that they're entitled to shape the entire direction of the country, everybody else's rights and beliefs be damned. I Look, we are a big country and we don't all agree on many things. I'm perfectly comfortable in this democracy <clears throat> to have people believe things I don't believe and we fight them out through the democratic process. And that can be an, as fundamental as what LGBTQ rights should be. We'll fight that out. And we have fought it out in our country, and it's led to an enormous explosion of freedom for people. Love that. Mm-hmm. that. Right? We had that fight. But what I see now is people who lost the fight and now want to shield behind their faith and use their faith to say, you cannot disagree with me. And mm-hmm. I feel about them the same way I feel about fighters in war who hide behind civilians. I think it is an appalling abuse and dangerous. Just me. Well, it's it's also it's just not what the Constitution envisions, right? The Constitution does not envision one particular religious sect dictating what um, what the law should be. In fact, the, the Constitution envisions the opposite. Now, they claim that what the Constitution envisions is that, well, the Methodists can't make the Baptists do what the Methodists want, right? Instead of, and because they have the assumption at the beginning of their argument that God intended America to be a Christian nation, then it's okay to have the laws dictated by their version of Christianity. They claim that the separation of church and state is such that, like I said, the Methodists can't you know, make the law such that they lord it over the Baptists. They're wrong, but and that's the way they try to their portray infrastructure. it. Sarah, then you've yeah. studied this more than anyone in the country. The money that's built their infrastructure, that's given them this megaphone, this is not money that's poured into them um, um, because of faith. It's poured into them because of politics. No, it is also poured into them because of faith. I mean, I think oh, that okay, you have to, like, you, you. 
you and I have had the argument before about whether it's faith or whether it's politics. But because you just because you disagree with it doesn't mean it's not religion. It very much is religion. Um, but they're they're using their religion to shape our politics. Yeah, I just think of some of the people who who think their pol- their religion helps politics, um, like Koch brothers, money, you know, that, that is um, following along in this path. But maybe they're just um, they're just uh, parallel riders. So wait, so you're saying that the, the Koch brothers are or aren't driven by religion? I'm saying I think that I think it's more of a commercial venture, um, right. unless the religion sure. unless the religion is like deregulation. But that doesn't seem like the you know, right, right, right. But like if you look at yeah, if you look at other um, billionaires or um, organizations that are pouring money into politics, whose mission is very clearly religiously stated as opposed to the Koch brothers. It is. I mean, yes, like that, it's their religion. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Wow. Well, it's a very interesting time. And um, uh, when last I checked, Democrats aren't anti-religious, not in any way. Joe Biden isn't. Um, I've been to, you know, I've, I've been to many a church for events where candidates come um, respectfully hat in hand to talk to people. Um, uh, so the, the, the battleground in this one is muddied and dangerous. I mean, I think that the main concern right now beyond the courts. I mean, obviously the concern about the evisceration of church-state separation uh, in the courts uh, is very troublesome right now. But I think in the, Mm. in 2024, the main concern here is what is going to happen in the election and what is going to happen if Donald Trump loses. Also the concern is what will happen if Donald Trump wins. Um, But in terms of what his, how his base might react to a loss, or how his base might react to an indict, uh, a conviction in one of these criminal cases if any of them go to trial before the election. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a big question mark. Well, that's why um, the country is fortunate to have you out there paying attention, because uh, it requires attention, it requires expertise, so you don't make the mistakes that I sometimes make um, to really know what's going on with this group. And, um, how it's structured, where the money is, where the lobbying is. And you are so right to talk about the courts. It's just not today's topic. Right. Sarah, as always, it's great to catch up. What are you reading? So I just started Lies and Sorcery by Elsa Morante. She is a very well, you know, regarded as one of the uh, up uh, Italian novelist of the 20th century, and she's just starting mm-hmm. to get more attention in the United States with a new translation of this book. So, um, just are you liking it? Started. Yes, very interesting. Goes on my list. It is, you know, sometimes we should just have a like a separate conversation only about books because I know you're a reader. Yeah, we can have, and that would be fun. We can have Sarah and Edwin's book club, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Sarah, on that happy note, um, thank you so much for your time today. Really, always appreciate it. Always like talking to you. Take care. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. All right, everybody. Um, We're going to take a break for the news, which I hope isn't as appalling as it was in the last break. And I promise I will talk about that um, uh, before we get off the show here. Um, And you're going to want to come back uh, after the news because Clarence Page is joining me. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, my blood pressure's come down because NBC News did a better job that time. Um, I won't talk about it yet because Clarence Page is here. Um, You know him. He's been a columnist for the Chicago Tribune for longer than he wants you to remember. A frequent guest on national news shows. I think he was last on on this show talking to me right after celebrating his 50th year at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Clarence, welcome back. Uh, thank you, Ed. And you are right. I have uh, crossed the, the mark on 50 years with the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and they said it couldn't be done, but I pulled it off. Yeah. Well, it is a it's a real accomplishment. I mean, it's hard to write once, let alone all the time, every day for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it's uh, also hard to write for a newspaper these days because newspapers are disappearing. But that's a whole other, other topic. Well, since you brought it up, um, uh, what's happening at the Tribune? We had a one-day strike last week, and then uh, the paper didn't cover the strike, and that made everybody upset who was there. Not that there isn't a whole lot of other news out there. I don't want to second-guess the news judgment, but I'd I'd sure like your thoughts just about the health of what's going on at that very large news organization, still large news organization in my town. Yeah, it's just not as large as it used to be, as far as the number of, of people who uh, work there. Okay. Uh, but uh, I can I can safely uh, uh, plead ignorance uh, here to, to the details of what's going on back in Chicago because I'm uh, working primarily out of Washington these days. Uh, yep. But uh, yeah, it, it it is sad, and and I was. Uh, I disturbed to see that, that uh, my own paper didn't cover this event. It's certainly major, but I think it's, it's probably a sign of, of changes in ownership. Uh, with uh, you know, when, when you have a a a sorry to say a holding company, uh, but a, um, uh, mm-hmm. a, a company that uh, I mean, you you got the business brain, you can. <laughs> Yeah, a remote, detached, uh, uh, profit-driven newspaper holding yeah. company. Yep. Yeah, yep. A, a company like like Alden, which has uh, got all kinds of uh, companies uh, in its uh, stable, but uh, uh, even though they uh, are becoming more and more known for buying up newspapers, uh, they're primarily concerned with with uh, making a profit, uh, and uh, which which is fine. Uh, but uh, uh, this is happening across the country, and newspapers that are, are doing well now tend to be those that are owned uh, by uh, a family or uh, a, 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 a business person who at least cares about uh, news. Uh, and that's kind of a specialty in itself. And, and I'm, talking, I'm talking about the Washington Post these days with Jeff Bezos, uh, the New York Times with, with the, the uh, uh, family that has historically uh, uh, owned the Times and uh, uh, the um, uh, Los Angeles Times, uh, which uh, yeah. uh, has an owner now who cares about, about news, but uh, he's new to the news industry. And they're, yeah, they're having yeah. some problems there, too. He sure is. So it kind of goes, goes right. on that way. Yeah. Well, um, 
while news well, you're, organizations you're, you're, are having a lot of trouble, there too, is the a lot of news, huh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, no shortage of news. Uh, and no. it's a, uh, a situation where, uh, well, this is the irony to me. You know, you get uh, a situation where national politics now are such in, in the uh, Donald Trump era uh, and, and uh, now the Joe Biden uh, era as well that uh, uh, you've got uh, a, a, a people, well, this is the age of the Internet now, so you've got everybody uh, with the ability to be their own publisher. So you've got all kinds of news and information going out, some of it good, uh, a lot of it trash, and it all gets uh, almost an equal amount of attention out there, and that's uh, really distorted our national debate uh, as, as we go into another presidential election now, uh, which is uh, going to be undoubtedly mo- most polarized we've ever seen. Well, let, let's talk about that election cycle. You've, you've seen a few, and you've even heard a, a few. few called the most important election we've ever had. Um, oh, yeah. This one might actually be the most important, but what do you think? Well, as I mentioned, I think this is the most polarized, no question uh, in my mind about that. Our, our elections have gotten more and more polarized uh, in the recent years uh, with, uh, uh, well, I talked about uh, people who have the ability not to be their own broadcaster. Uh, everybody can go online and put their own news out, I, I say that with quotation marks around the board news, uh, and uh, you get a lot of, of, of false information going out. Uh, that distorts our, our debate. Uh, you also have a situation where uh, there used to be a time when, when the parties, mainly Republican and Democrat, uh, the parties controlled their ballots uh, and, and their uh, rosters uh, more closely than now. Uh, when you had a situation where uh, every, every, almost every candidate turned to the party for uh, the, the assistance that the uh, fundraising and precinct captains, et cetera, armies of, of our campaigners working out there on the street, uh, that was organized from the top uh, party chairpersons who were able to put some order in the whole event, the whole system. Uh, nowadays, you've got renegade candidates who are good at raising publicity and, and raising their own profiles. Uh, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens out there now and the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, well, Donald Trump himself uh, uh, now, who's always been a master of publicity. Uh, you see how potent he is uh, out there. And uh, uh, this happens uh, among liberal candidates as well. But we have not, in recent years, uh, I, I go back to, to the days of, of Ralph Nader. He, he was an example, a prototypical example of, uh, of that. Uh, nowadays, you've got the uh, third-party candidates uh, running for the uh, Democratic nomination there, Cornell West, uh, 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 Bobby Kennedy, young Bobby Kennedy, and uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, other uh, folks. Uh, how many others are there out there now? Somebody just dropped out the other day, uh, uh, the uh, – um, uh, 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 her uh, uh, name slipped in my mind now, but the uh, uh, Marianne Williams, Marianne Williams. Yeah, thank you very much. Right, right. Uh, I haven't uh, uh, got, gotten very familiar with the self-help book market, so I wasn't yeah. familiar with Marianne right. Williams and supposed right. to popped up in, right. in the debates. But that's the kind of situation you've got nowadays, and um, maybe uh, more changes to come. Um. Yeah, we have an information problem for sure. Party discipline is different. It's much more chaotic. I want to challenge your 
your observation about America being more polarized or our campaign being more polarized. I don't know yeah. if I think I don't know if I feel that way. I, I tend to feel like, you know, I mean, I, it wasn't until 1968 that that all um, black Americans were permitted to vote in a presidential race. Right. That was That's after right. the Voting Rights Act. Right. Not to, the country yeah. was certainly <laughs> more divided before then than it is now. We were more divided when women couldn't take half the jobs in the country than we are now. Right. We were more divided when everybody who is gay felt like they had to hide. I just think that in sure. many ways, America has come together, but we've come together in a new way that's sort of multiracial, multi-faith, and that's terrifying to a smaller group that is determined mm-hmm. not to let it happen. So I, I don't know that the whole country yeah. is more divided. I think there is one subset that's taken over the Republican Party that has launched into orbit. It's gone so far away <laughs> from the mainstream. And I, I wonder if you think that's yeah. fair. Well, uh, thank you, for, first of all, uh, Ed, for uh, uh, challenging my observation, uh, because I usually only have my, my wife do that normally, and that does a very good job of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, are, are we more polarized? Usually, usually I'm the person who says, eh, well, aren't, aren't that polarized. I mean, I mean, we had a civil war. Uh, we had 1968, uh, the year, by the way, when I turned 21 and got the right to vote. And uh, I'm old enough to remember when we had Jim Crow and uh, when I, mm-hmm. I went down south to visit my cousins, we, we, we had white and colored uh, restrooms. I, I mean, yeah, we're light years away from that now. But when I say we are more polarized now, I mean uh, more in terms of what, what I said before, more people have a voice in terms of having media access uh, than yes. ever before. And so all kinds of ideas go out, some of them good, some of them crazy. And uh, there's, there's a certain equalizing impact that the media has in that uh, if the, uh, people hear it on their news show or some show that sounds like a news show, it has as much value to them as a, as a, a falsehood uh, that goes out and uh, has a, um, well, there was a study at Harvard's, Harvard's Media Center that has uh, at least one study that showed uh, that, that, that false information has a better chance of, of wider dissemination than good information. Uh, there have been several studies, really, that, that have uh, found versions of that. But when I look at, the, at QAnon and, and the other offbeat um, uh, uh, cults that have popped up, uh, information cults that uh, cling to a certain idea simply because they find it to be comfortable, <laughs> comfortable uh, mm-hmm. and uh, lose track of, of it being veracible, in other words, provable, true, et cetera, uh, yep. then you have a real problem there. And that's kind of what we have today. Yeah. Well, we definitely have a huge information problem. And that's a that's a big topic. I'm not I don't not dive into that one right now, but we've talked about it before. Really important. Hey, uh, but related to that, and because it's part of the information weirdness that's out there. And I know you've written about it a couple of times. Why couldn't Nikki Haley answer the question about what brought us to civil war? Yeah, you know, well, I I have a theory based on my knowledge of the South and the North and differing attitudes toward race and different perceptions of history. You talk about alternative facts. Uh, Right after after the Civil War, uh, 
immediately you had the beginnings of the uh, cult of the lost cause, if you're familiar with that, uh, which was uh-huh. uh, which was Confederates who were, were, were sore losers, uh, really felt they had the righteous cause and, and, and they lost and did everything, everything they could, but particularly through an organization called the Daughters of the, uh, of the uh, American Confederacy. Uh, uh, who who uh, went around building statues that were tributes to Confederate officers uh, and, and, and battles. Uh, we have on the south side of Chicago a uh, monument in, in uh, one of the cemeteries there that was put up by uh, the daughters. A big, grand monument to the to the uh, lost cause and the uh, souls who were lost. Uh, I can go on about the Civil War and Chicago. It's really very closely tied. That Chicagoans know almost nothing about uh, because, uh, except for those who are aficionados of this sort of thing, uh, uh, looking at uh, I got a book on my shelf, Chicago in the Civil War, which uh, shows you know stations of the Underground Railroad and uh, Stephen Douglas's uh, who, uh, who was uh, uh, well, I'm not getting into too much history there, but there was a, there was a Confederate Army um, uh, prison on the south side. Uh, they were right by Stephen Douglas's uh, yep. house, right next to the IC railroad tracks. If you know about that, you know yep. uh, it, it, that was one of, one of the worst atrocities of the Civil War, and occurred right in Chicago. Uh, yep. So anyway, I, I'm going on. The reason why I go on about that is I thought. <laughs> When I first started working in Washington, I was talking to an old Virginia gentleman, uh, and I, I was just marveling at, at how much more people care about civil war in the South than the North. And um, uh, uh, I said, you know, I came here from Chicago, and I thought the civil war ended in 1865. And uh, the man said, oh, it didn't end. Uh, that was just intermission. <laughs> and that's the way Southerners view, uh, I shouldn't say all Southerners, but there is a cult of the lost cause that, that believes that, that theirs was the righteous cause. And that has given birth to what we have now. When you look at our current uh, Congress, it was the Speaker of the House, you know, when he was uh, asked uh, about the Constitution, uh, and, and, and he, he said that uh, 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 for, uh, for the document he really cares about uh, is, is the Ten Commandments. It's not a direct quote, but, but is essentially uh, his sentiment. Uh, and uh, that's uh, uh, Johnson, Speaker of the House, uh, uh, just the other day now, you see he uh, co- cobbled together uh, a uh, coalition of uh, uh, voters uh, who were able to uh, suddenly, you know, after having pushed border security as their most important issue among Republicans, uh, suddenly Donald Trump uh, says, oh, oh, we can't give that away. You can't pass that bill now uh, because uh, we need that issue uh, for the presidential campaign. And uh, sure enough, the, uh, the uh, um, uh, Republican uh, Republicans in the House uh, flipped to their position and suddenly turned against the border security bill that would have really dealt with that. It would have, would have resupplied money to Ukraine. Uh, you got all these uh, this great compromise that was made in a time when too few compromises are made, and it uh, was uh, destroyed because of uh, Donald Trump getting uh, his nose into it. Uh, so, who's the yep. real uh, president? Who's the real leadership? Uh, uh, there's a certain amount of anarchy going on, which is tied together uh, with um, uh, what these ch- channels of, of power, like the internet. Uh, that is really. Um, 
uh, causing a well. Th- that's going to be what, th- what determines our next president, our next presidential term. Well, that argues that we have to get very busy getting good information in the hands of people, um, and I fear that that's going to be very hard, as because you pointed out, partly because of the money, um, uh, misinformation and disinformation, as that Harvard study showed. It, it, uh, spreads faster. Spreads yeah, faster. and we have. Yep. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing action on all kinds of fronts now. Uh, I think uh, well, people on the left as well as on the right now uh, are looking at how to get their vote out, which is what people do need to look at this year. Uh, and uh, I look at um, you know, besides you got border security for Republicans, you've got uh, the right to choose abortion rights uh, among uh, Democrats and being a very powerful force to turn voters out. Uh, so uh, here again now, I maintain this is a very polarized election, and uh, these are two examples of issues like this. I expect you're going to have people on both sides working very hard uh, to win voters to to their side and to their cause. Uh, And and that's going to be uh, uh, what shapes our politics for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So so I, I want to ask you about the perspective in Washington about some of the things that are happening in the states because I just don't see it written about too much. And I think the Great Lakes states are amazing. I mean, here in Illinois, mm-hmm. where, as you know, we have had a bipartisan mess for decades, right? Now the right. state's finances are improving. Businesses are growing. Jobs are coming back. We're seeing increased tourism, although some of that is the tragedy of young women coming here for abortions they can't get in their own states. Over in Michigan, right. where just a few years ago, bad governance left an entire city without drinkable water. That state's on right. fire, attracting billions in private investment, um, using their public dollars to improve their schools and their state infrastructure. It's the same in Minnesota, and Minnesota's even gone sort of uh, to that uh, laboratories of democracy place, and they are testing a bunch of progressive legislation. The rest of us can see how that works, and in Wisconsin – you know, they look to be close to breaking the worst gerrymander in the nation. I mean, why aren't the Democrats here in the in, in the Great Lakes? Why aren't we the poster children for what Democrats really are in the country, as opposed to, you know, the ones who are the loudest who get on TV in Washington? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I think uh, for one thing, you got to certainly turn to the states and uh, the different conditions in the states. Illinois, for example, uh, is now the new um, uh, the new New York or California when it comes to being quite solidly Democratic run, uh, having a uh, you know, Democratic governor, uh, d- Democrats control the legislature. Uh, yep. You've got uh, uh, Republicans feel like, you know, the outcasts with their hands in their pockets, praying for Donald Trump to come and deliver them. Uh, and, and quite the opposite in any number of, of uh, solidly Republican states. Where uh, uh, you have, uh, uh, there's a, you, talk, you talk about the smaller group of people. Uh, Republicans know the smaller party right now, and that only enhances the sense of paranoia in the rank and file, which is encouraged by the people at the top, uh, uh, who, who say that even 
various versions of, uh, of uh, the Great Replacement Theory have found their way uh, to the uh, inner ranks and uh, upper ranks of the Republican Party. I never thought I would see it, but the Great Replacement Theory is that uh, you know the uh, <clears throat> Uh, 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 that that Democrats are the Democratic Party, j- just to name one entity, is encouraging more uh, immigration by uh, new Americans uh, in order to uh, uh, help their ranks. I'm saying that uh, well, Hispanic voters, for example, grateful for uh, uh, a looser border or open borders, as Republicans uh, call it, uh, that, that they will turn and, and vote Democratic. Well, by their own figures, they can see that that's not true or it's not reliable. Uh, the thought that Democrats were going to win Florida this last time, and it turned out the Hispanic voters in Florida uh, turned out enough votes to help put Trump over the top. And that's uh, continuing, that uh, Republicans think strong and stronger in, in Florida, uh, where there's all this paranoia, paranoia about new uh, citizens. Uh, there's nothing new about that kind of xenophobia, you, you know, uh, this uh, anti-immigrant sentiment. It, it, it's a very American thing as far as uh, having historical tenure. But uh, nowadays, it's got an extra bite to it because there is this paranoia that we're being replaced. So you, so uh, that, that gives more strength to those uh, who are uh, either anti-immigrant or, or uh, uh, anti um, uh, 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 Immigration reforms uh, uh, in, uh, in any sense that will make it uh, easier for more immigrants to come. And so th- this is uh, one of those shadow issues that uh, well, it certainly helped uh, uh, um, uh, Trump to, to win. Uh, and um, uh, that's why he wants to keep uh, that border issue out there, because uh, in the hopes that that can counter uh, the gains the Democrats have made uh, since the uh, new um, since the end of Roe v. Wade and mm-hmm. a rallying now of people who want to restore uh, the right to choose. Uh, that's the kind of dynamic we're working in. Yeah. I mean, I think about Republicans in Illinois. And the Republican governors that we've had in Illinois going right. as far back as I can remember, which might be Dick Ogilvie. It's a long way. Yeah. These were not Republicans who would be recognizable today. They weren't. They didn't talk great replacement theory. They didn't. No, they, they didn't. They weren't like Donald Trump. I mean, so so if the if Illinois is solidly blue today, it's not that the people who were. Republicans in this state have changed their mind. It's that the Republican Party has left them and gone somewhere else. They don't. Th- those That's sort right. of solid Americans, so they got no party. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, those moderate Republicans, the Mitt Romneys and uh, various other moderate Republicans, they're still around. They just don't dominate anymore. Uh, what dominates is uh, the craziness like like uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, has brought into our national politics, this extremism uh, that led to that assault on the Capitol. I mean, that's the kind of event I never thought was going to happen. But here it is uh, making me think, maybe that guy who said the Civil War isn't over it was right, especially when I saw you know, some of the folks that were storming the Capitol waving Confederate flags, uh, which takes us back again, Edwin, to, uh, to Jim Crow and the 60s. And uh, uh, why I, my optimism is always guarded, you know, even uh, uh, after uh, 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 Barack Obama served 
two successful terms. Uh, I I now see on a closer examination that at the same time Donald Trump and uh, his, his cohort was on the sidelines saying, "Well, now we really got a chance." To- to take over because people are going to see the danger. And I heard no less than David Duke say that back in Virginia when they were organizing around the events in Charlottesville. And I thought Duke was nuts. And then I saw that, hey, I see what's going on because suddenly there's this revival of attitudes and ideas that I thought had died, gone into remission by the time Obama came along. Uh, no, they're just as lively as they ever were and uh, uh, ready to uh, take over the government again. Well, so that brings me to the, to the last question I had for you, and it's complicated. Um, and it really is. Uh, I always I love mean, to get that one's the last question. <laughs> sorry. I mean, it's a simple question, but it's a complicated idea. What does it mean to win? Like, it surely can't be, okay, we beat them at the polls, the election's over, because we know that. Uh, the last election we won, they didn't say it was over. A civil war we won, and you've just spent 10 minutes telling me about the lost cause. What, what does it mean to win? How do we win? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm reminded of, of the, the night Harold Washington uh, went over the top as far as his, his first uh, primary, uh, the primary uh, he won in order to, to become mayor. Uh, yep. It, it, it shocked, shocked a lot of people. I was over there at the old McCormick Inn uh, when the vote yep. count came in, and oh, I remember what a great night that was. Yeah, exactly. Oh, what a great and and, and uh, we had everybody but Harold Washington there at the McCormick Inn. How come? Because Washington said, said we got now that we won the vote, we got to protect the vote. And he yeah. knew uh, after after decades of working in the old Democratic machine, he knew uh, that, that you got to protect that vote. Now you got to go out there and make sure that it doesn't disappear uh, somewhere in the south branch of the Chicago River. And so uh, uh, I, uh, that, that's the same thing Obama did uh, when he won. His people uh, checked and made sure, you know, is, is this secure? And yep. uh, then Donald Trump showed us why there was that concern. Because when he uh, failed to get reelected, he, uh, well, his people, and this has been litigated now, isn't it? <laughs> but thirdly, uh, there was this revolt uh, uh, by, by Trump and uh, various folks on his side uh, because uh, they, uh, 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 well, they assaulted the vote. And now we're seeing, uh, along with the Supreme Court and others, that our elections aren't as secure as we used to think they were. And, and that's something that we've that got to be concerned about now, too. So, so, yeah, what does it mean to win? Ed? Yeah, we all got to ask that question. What does it mean to win? And once you think you have won, can you hang on to the victory? Yeah, yeah. Well, as always, it is a great pleasure and fun for me to catch up with you. Oh, me too. We don't have enough time to catch up with all of it. But uh, thank you for calling again. And and, uh, and I hope we can uh, talk again soon here, especially as this uh, great adventure unfolds. Yep, going to be a great year. Well, thank you, Clarence. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, all everybody. We're going to take we're, we're going to was that was a remarkable Clarence Page from the Chicago Tribune. We're going to take a moment. And um, when we come back, I, I want to just have a brief bit about the news and then I'll take your calls. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. All right, you guys, call in and I will get to your calls in just one second. I just, I need to get this off my chest because during that first break, NBC News ran 
its news, and its news was about uh, um, the exoneration, for gosh sakes, that uh, special counsel uh, made of Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. And just to remind you, Donald Trump was found with boxes and boxes and boxes of classified documents and playing a shell game with them in Mar-a-Lago, right? Um, at almost the same time, two former vice presidents, Mike Pence and Joe Biden, now currently president, um, appeared to have some uh, classified documents that were that came with them when they left office, right? Both Pence and uh, and President Biden cooperated with the Justice Department, sat down for interviews, gave, let, gave everything back right away, and sat for interviews on top of it, right? Trump didn't. He obfuscated. He lied. And uh, he got indicted. They went through. They found cause. They indicted him. Uh, he will go to trial on that, uh, hopefully soon. Um, the other two, they both cooperated, and they were found to have done nothing wrong. In Pence's case, Justice Department issues a short paper, says, yep, nothing was found. In Biden's case, the special counsel, who was a Trump appointee and um, member, you know, participant with the Federalist Society, didn't do that. He took the opportunity to um, go through the evidence and say there's nothing there, but then gratuitously added something, um, something that is right in line with current Republican narrative talking points, um, right, uh, about Joe Biden's age. And so NBC News makes that the story. Not um, if you're going to talk about it, then you have to talk about the scandal of this um, this Republican operative inside the department weaponizing the Justice Department in exactly the way they accuse Democrats of doing because it had no business being in there. And really, truly, does anyone think Joe Biden doesn't remember the most traumatic day in his entire life, the day his son Bo died? That's how pathetic this is. So if you ever hear a news story that, that sort of says, oh, Biden's age has been made an issue, call BS. Call it out for what it is. It's more planted nonsense to take away from the fact that what was the story? What was the story? The story was, there's nothing here, guys. We're moving on. Okay. Jim, I'm sorry for eating into your time. That's all right, Edwin. This is the big story this weekend, and they're probing for a weakness. And as Shakespeare said, we have to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It's just a yeah. way, especially, especially a situation like this. But a couple of things in the break today. First of all, let him start with the age issue on us, because we can come right back. Now, if I'm going to diagnose the grand old party frontrunner, I would say he has a tendency to be criminally insane. I don't know <laughs> if that, he's not a kindly old man. He's criminally insane. And not only that, but he refuses to take the election seriously. He believes that he, sh he should win under any circumstances, and there was no such thing as a fair, fair election. And uh, we'll just have to ride the storm up, but both, he's three years younger than, than Biden, so he's just the same age as Biden. And I, I argue that he's uh, five times wackier than Biden could ever be. But that's not the point. Real quick, another thing that we, we I love to run on is this prohibition against women's uh, autonomy. 
1920, yep. Wayne Wheeler uh, by himself started the prohibition in 1920 with the Post Act. All right, so that ran for about 12 years, and they finally had to get rid of it because it was so ridiculous. Because that was another. Uh, it was, we we're going to make us morally bound to this idea that if nobody drinks, we'll have a morally uh, upright country. And it's similar. It's almost the same as this prohibition against women. In other words, if we don't let women have their uh, own uh, doctors and their own validity, this is a moral demerit on our part. I mean, it's it's not going to stand, but that's in our favor. But I, let me, I'll have the argument how the age of these two, because in my estimation, Trump is sinking fast. I don't care what anybody says. If that's what they want to do, if this lawyer turned doctor, turned uh, doctor, uh, uh, Good luck with that, because uh, we can watch Trump just as carefully, absolutely getting worse and worse every day. Anyway, thanks, Edwin. Have a good week. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening, and thank you for participating. Thank you. Yep. Uh, All right, Paul. Donald Trump is a convicted rapist, a proven fraudster and slanderer, and he's so obese from his McDonald's diet. He couldn't run across the street if he was on fire, and that would be a grease fire. He ain't nobody's messiah, and he's by elevator speech. That's the attack. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, I mean, that's all you need. He he is a convicted rapist. Well, look it. Here's the other thing I've been saying, is that he is as guilty of rape as O.J. Simpson was of murder. If you think O.J. Simpson... I, I, I want to just say that the the takeaway was a slightly different um, from Rachel in the beginning, because she would argue that um, that that we have to make it personal um, that, um, you know, Donald Trump's character is partly the issue. But we have to be able to say to all the women we know, he's going to take away your rights to all the voters we know. He's going to take away yeah, yeah. your rights. Right. That's to uh, yeah. anybody who's a working man and woman, he's going to tax you and give it to his rich friends. Make it like right. people have to know he's coming for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's so, coming for you. Yes, because that's what he's saying. And, and that's what the Republican. You're, you're absolutely right about that. But have you noticed yeah. that he has not been out this week? Oh, yeah, he was. He, think- was he, he had a rally yesterday. It was a lie fest in Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. but see that he can only <laughs> look. If you're running for president at this point, you need to be out. You need to be out five days a week. And uh, well, I think he's got to he, spend he some time out, in court. Can, <laughs> well, he, wait, he didn't. He didn't go to court this week. No, but you know, I mean, how would you feel but, if you I, had that many cases against you? <laughs> I, I oh, cry me a river. Where's the little violin? Yeah. Look, it, I mean, no, I think the guy can only get out when he can get when he can get drugged up enough to do it. Because I think, like I said, he is so he was morbidly obese and he's so unhealthy. He couldn't run across the street if he was on fire. I think the guy's health is really failing. I really do. He looks, looks so bad. Um, well, I, I, I you know what? I, it, it's above my pay grade to speculate on that. I do know that the health of the country suffers every time he opens his mouth. That's for sure. Well, it's above my great pay grade too, but I'm a commentator, and so, <laughs> so are you. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not above 
You know what? Come on. Was, I'm not above kicking somebody in the chops. This is, this is football. I mean, let's, let's look at it. You know, just because you knock somebody silly on the field doesn't mean you're, uh, you know, you're a bad person or you hate them. Or you, that's, that's, that's football. That means just to use yep. the, the weekend analogy. But, all, right, all right. Just go to that for one second, please. Um, by the way, Trump is rallying in South Carolina right now. Filling well, okay, because that's it's, so. it's on Tuesday, right? He, yeah, he yeah. can only get going. I, just, I want to change the subject for just one second. Do you have a Super Bowl yeah. pick? Okay. Do you have a Super Bowl pick? Oh, do I have a Super Bowl pick? Um, you know, uh, I I know the 49ers are, are, are favored by two, and I would be rooting for the 49ers, but I think the I think the Chiefs are going to win. Uh, I'm going to say 24 to 20. 24 to 20. That's specific. I, Wow. Yeah. All right. That's just what I All right. Well, I, I'm going to, I got a few uh, stacked up there. I got to get to, but thanks, Paul. Yeah. Okay. Have we go. All right. Nancy. Hi, Edwin. How are you? Thank you, Nancy. I'm good. How are you? I'm, well, I'm upset, but you had three terrific guests on today. Again, they were wonderful. Thank you. But my question is, and I know when I say this, you're going to scream at me. Because I always hear Hartman say about uh, despair is not an action. I'm in despair. I'm ticked off. I'm fed up. Because where was, I'm sorry, I forgot your first guest's name. Rachel. About how to fight. Yes. Where was she? And I'm not asking on her part. Why weren't you had no problem finding her? Why haven't the Democrats dug her up like 25 years ago, or how about when Reagan first started this war on, uh, on democracy and everything? You know, this is the problem with the Democrats. Well, the basic problem is two-party system doesn't support democracy. It destroys it. And I know it's not going to change in my life, but that's why I'm in despair, because I tell people or I call in and I say, you know, two-party system isn't working for democracy. They agree with me, and then they turn around and say, well, it's not going to change in your lifetime. No, it probably isn't. I'm old. It's not going to change in my lifetime. But we have to fight for it to change. And I'm counting on the younger generations, but, you know, when I hear Tom Hartman tell me that uh, the cons are sending out all kind of literature into uh, um, Mexico and um Puerto Rico and everything and telling everybody about how, oh, you know, Democrats hate you and they're going to, you know, turn you back and, you know, don't come to or No, they say come to America for jobs. And then when they get to the border, then the cons are screaming about, you know, not letting them in and stuff. We've been fighting the same argument forever. I've been voting for 50 years, voting for 50 years. And they told me when I first started voting, we have to get rid of the electoral college. We have to get rid of the filibuster. We have to get yeah. money out of politics. Yeah. Have we done it? Nancy, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of persistent. I hear you. There are a lot of persistent problems we have that we have not solved. But let me ask you this question. Think back to America 50 years ago. Think back. Are we not a better place than we were 50 years ago? I mean, 50 mm. years ago, 50 years ago, you know, again, the first time if you were black, the first time you were allowed to vote for a president in every state was 1968. We're better than that. I know. 
Right. We are making know, progress in so many ways. So don't despair. I mean, I just think, you know, there, there's un- I think back what 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 I had in my house, you know, I was I, I had a box of records that weighed a ton and one record player, you know, a refrigerator with a few things, right. like ragged old chair and a bit like not much. Right. There's much more abundance in the world. There's much more um, equality in the world. There's I mean, people oh, have more I'm choices than they've ever had. And we, 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 there's so many problems still to face. And we have big ones in yes, front of there us. There are. And Leading the side, like the environment, big, big problems still. But we always had big problems. And we, but the difference is we, we, we thought we were up to the challenge. Bring on those problems. We'll go to the moon. Okay. I mean, that seemed like a big thing at the time. You know what? There's a big challenge. We'll take it on. We aren't a different people. We can still take on these big challenges, even with the Republicans tying lead weights around our feet and trying to throw us in Lake Michigan. I mean, as you and I are talking, I I'm looking at the feed of what Donald Trump is saying in his rally in North Carolina. He's telling Russia to attack NATO countries. He's insane. Right. He's insane. Yes, he we is. are going to crush that, that man in an election, beginning. and we are going to win big enough to do some of the structural things we haven't been able to do for 40 years. We are close. May I make, We're close. May I just, uh, and this is going to sound snarky, and I'm not trying to be, but no, are we better now than we were in 1968? In certain areas, yes. But here's what I've seen over the last 50 years. We went to a peak, and now we started going downhill because of the two-party system. And Democrats still don't know. Your first guest made that point, too. They still don't know how to fight back, although I give the progressives a lot of credit. I'm a proud progressive socialist Democrat, and I'm a Bernie fan, and they screwed up so many times. They picked the candidate. We don't pick the primary candidate. It wasn't South Carolina that uh, chose Joe Biden. It was the fact that they stopped Super Tuesday before it could be held. And, you know, all this, all this stuff, They, you know, people are under the illusion that every vote counts. Then why do we have primary and not primary uh, swing states and all that? Why does Colorado not mean anything? And yet they're not so Supreme Court. They're changing, you know, 200 years ago, the forefathers told us, oh, we're not going to have uh, any, you know, anybody who uh, is against the Constitution or whatever they said about, you know, the, yeah. the Confederates yeah. can't yeah, run the in our office, yeah. can't War. take off. Well, yeah. you know, not so Supreme Court just knocked that down, didn't they? I, well, because I think they will. They haven't yet, well, but I think they will. Come back yeah. with they're going to come back with, uh, you know, and I almost puked when I heard <laughs> Kagan. I really thought Kagan was on our, you know, on the right side. And I don't mean that Republican. Anyway, uh, when she said, oh, do you expect one state to choose the president? Really? Was she yeah, not well, around I, for Florida? No, you know what? She, yes, she her. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for her, but um, this is a really interesting case. And then we have a, we have a couple more coming. You know, immunity is coming. I mean, so we, the, the Supreme Court's going to be very busy. Oh, they're going to no, they're going to say he's not immune, but that's only to make up for the fact that they're going to say he could run. I want him to run. They're not going to win this year. They're not. 
No, but I'm glad not. everybody's scared about it because then they'll keep fighting for it. But let's win by I'm 55 or 60 percent, Nancy. And if we win that big, we're going to be able to make those changes that have been so long in coming. And, you know, I mean, one of the things yeah. I love about Joe Biden is he has undone the deal that's been in place since 1980 that said everything has to go to the top and it'll trickle down. He said, nope, that's not how we build a great country. And it's going to take, right. you know, I mean, gosh, he's been three years trying to change 30 of history. You know, I think we're moving right. in the right direction now. It's not easy. But, hey, Nancy, I as always, I am very happy that you listen and call and participate. I got to go on because there are a few others. But really, Nancy, thank you. Thank you hey, for listening. Before you go, Nancy, do you have a Super Bowl yes. pick? Not really, but I'm kind of... Uh... I don't know. I'm torn because I know Kansas City and um, all that stuff, but they won last year in San Francisco. Yep. But to be honest with you, the Bears aren't in it, so I really, you know, don't really. <laughs> all right. Spoken like a true <laughs> Chicagoan. Thank you, by, Nancy. I bet, I bet they won't win by two points because that's the way the, uh, you know, they set it up. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, I'll right. talk to you next Thank week. You. Okay. Hey, Brian. What's on your mind today? Hello. Uh, I agree with uh, Nancy, uh, always uh, edifying. Uh, and uh, uh, the reason I'm calling, uh, I'm not sure. It seems to me a couple weeks ago uh, uh, you said that uh, uh, people on uh, Medicaid are not making a contribution to society. Uh, uh, no. Would you like to clarify that? Or I did I not say that. I did not say that. I have, I have no recollection. I wouldn't say that. Uh, no, oh, that would have been somebody else, not me. No, 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 no. Well, I think people are people um, first wealthy and not wealthy Americans all can contribute to America in different ways and do every day. Um, and people who get uh, government benefits are worthy and do good things. And those benefits uh, help them make more contributions to America. So, no, that's how I feel. I would never have said that if oh, you're okay. getting well, I'm, then, uh, I'm glad you clarified that. And, yeah. uh, and I just uh, uh, wanted to say that uh, uh, a couple uh, real quick. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's a shame that uh, any uh, persons in, the, in this country would be uh, having to sweat losing their Medicaid, Social Security, or Medicare. And totally agree with you. talking about giving all this money to other countries. And uh, uh, if I have uh, uh, you or someone on your station, I would love it sometime to hear from uh, Dr. Cornell West. Yeah, that, I'm not sure I want to give him the time of day right now, but yes, I do understand that. Um, uh, before I get to Cornell West, though, you know, the Republicans have campaigned on getting rid of sunsetting Social Security, Medicare, getting rid of Medicaid. This is a these are I don't know what kind of country they want to live in, but um, the, these programs work. They help people um, and they and they help us be a more competitive nation. You know, it's not a handout. It is a it is a way to let people go to work, get on with their lives, be contributors to the country. I strongly believe that. And, and these guys want to take it away. So I'm glad you brought it up, even though um, it wasn't me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, well, Brian. Well, thank you always. for clarifying. Thank you for you clarifying. Bet. Bye-bye. You bet.
Okay, uh, Chris. Hey, Edwin. Hi there. Uh, hey, um, if if Greg Abbott can uh, uh, avoid the Supreme Court, why can't Colorado, if they rule against Colorado and keeping Trump off the ballot, why can't this, uh, Colorado keep Trump off the ballot, even though the Supreme Court says they should be that Trump should be on the ballot? Great question. And the answer is because the good people of Colorado, like the good people everywhere, believe in the rule of law. And even if we don't agree, look, the, the, the Constitution and the, and the Supreme Court um, cost us elections where we won the majority vote. Right. Hillary Clinton won the majority vote. She's never got to the White House. Al Gore won the majority vote and the Supreme Court stopped counting in Florida. Right. Um, in those cases, we didn't burn down the Capitol. You know, we didn't we didn't say my way or the highway. We said, look, we get it. But in a democracy, we function by the rule of law. And, we, you know, we're going to keep going out there. We're going to work. We're going to win again. Then we're going to make a difference to our fellow citizens. Congratulations. We're moving on. But these other guys won't exactly. do that. Right. So you're, to, you're asking the right question. But the good people of Colorado should not disobey the law. They should say, OK, we got it and we're going to work to change the laws that we don't like. But we're certainly going to work to win this election. It, leave it to the other guys to go try and burn down the Capitol. This is not us. We actually love this but country. If, I understand. But if, but if the Supreme Court allows Trump in the ballot, if he becomes president, he's going to ignore the Supreme Court. And if people don't, if the Supreme Court justices don't agree with him. He's going to have him taken out and shot. Uh, I think he's lawless, and I think we have to beat him. But I think we will beat him, Chris. We will. We're going to work every day to do it. Anyway, thank you. Really appreciate it. Good point. Good point. Um, I think there's another Brian. Am I right? Hey, good afternoon. Hey. Uh, Another good show today. Uh, Thank you. Just a few observations. I mean, we're we're nine months from the election day, approximately. Um, I just I find it ironic that we spend ninety percent of the time talking about the process and the media and the horse race, and very little time on the actual real issues, like how we're going to fund all these all these programs that everybody loves. You know, Social Security is supposedly going to be running short on funds. we got to figure that out. Medicaid, Medicare isn't really much better. Uh, so where are we going to get these funds? You know, and then we're promising all these other programs to other people, and then we want to have high levels of immigration to people that we're going to need government assistance. So we're really not talking about it. You know, it's we talk about democracy, but what is it? You know, what is, is democracy people having the ability to vote themselves a lifestyle? Is, is that what that is? Yeah, I think oh, Brian, I think, these, these are good points um, uh, on those issues. Um, uh, the one of the issues, it's not in the public's mind, the most important one right now. Um, when you when you ask Americans, you know, what are the issues they care about right now? Budget deficits are not high on that list. There are other things that are much higher that are being talked about. Um, but but if you get to budget deficits, um, there are real questions. And, um, you know, uh, the the you have to bear in mind where they came from. Right. The budget deficits skyrocketed when uh, George Bush sent us to war in Iraq and and said, we're going to borrow to pay for it. 
and 20 years of that busted the budget. Right. Um, uh, Democrats have have had these have abided by these caps so that anything um, that they passed was paid for by um, either a tax or a um, or or a trade somehow. Um, But we have these. I mean, I agree with you. The budget is actually the deficit is actually some point an issue. But um, here's the miracle. I mean, under Biden, the economy has grown at a rate that is un, um, you know, unfathomable, the amount of jobs and the amount of revenue that's coming in. So, we, you know, th- that's all really good news. And um, I do think we do have to be careful. Um, uh, I would, if it were up to me, I would get rid of Trump's tax cuts. We were just fine before we had them. I'd just say, you know what, those corporate tax breaks, goodbye. That'll make a huge dent. And um, I don't know that it's constitutional. I don't know that you can have a wealth tax. But, the, you know, there, there are 10, 12 people who's, who are sitting on a fortunes that are, um, that are decisions about our economy sort of funneled cash to them in ways that are so astronomically hard to understand. Um, and I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to take anything from anybody. But I think we have to level the playing field. And when we do... Ordinary commerce will certainly fill a lot of those holes. But you're right. We can't launch whole new, vast new programs without paying for them. And right. the good news and is I, that I agree. Yeah. I think we have a long, hot summer ahead of us. And I think the issue of climate change is going to make itself more evident with, you know, yes. droughts and hurricanes and who knows what's going to happen in the next six, you know, six, nine months. And climate I think change, that, abortion are going to be big issues. Right. People are going to get. Yeah. So we are talking about it a little, but yeah. Right. But personal responsibility has got to be part of the message. It just can't be all the government's going to take care of you. You know, I mean, you think about health care. Totally agree. 40% of America is obese. You know, why is that? Uh, I think we should have a junk food tax. You know, the the food industry has got everybody addicted to salt, sugar, fat, you know, and what's what is the Chicago tried a sugar tax. It didn't go well. Chicago right. did try, or Cook County tried to put on a sugar tax, and uh, right. there was a revolt. But um, but I look, um, one of the things that Bill Clinton, and I know he's not the most popular president these days, but back then I thought he was great, and he used to talk about opportunity and responsibility together. And that's absolutely right. Anyway, Brian, I really appreciate your call. Um, I've run out of time. And, and, and those of you who are waiting to call, call earlier next week. I apologize. But we will get right back at, at it then. And just remember, when you hear, you know, stuff that sounds like the Democrats are being defensive, pay no attention. It's nonsense. Go out there and say what you know. The other guys are coming for you and your neighbors, and we aren't going to let them. Have a great week. <laughs> 